Welcome to Wanda's Picks, a black arts and cultural program of the African Sisters Media Network. And that was Zion Trinity singing opening prayer to the African deity, Eshu Legba, a deity that lets us know that we always have choices. We are never victims. So we should pause, take a breath, and look around and look inside and exercise our options. And we are so excited to finally have the famous N.K. joining us to talk about Bacchanal, the Afrique Festival, which is going global and online this year, but it's still happening November 6th, next week through the 30th. So it's going to be a full month. My goodness, it's going to be really phenomenal. And uh, so we're going to ask uh, N.K. to introduce our other guests who are choreographers and performers and also um just sort of core members of the festival. So, N.K., how do you pronounce your last name? And how do you pronounce the, your uh, full first name? My, yeah. Hi, Wanda. I'm, I'm happy to Hi. be here. Thanks for having us. Um, my full name is Nkiruka Oruche, and um, it's Ibo from um, the southeast of uh, present-day Nigeria. And um, I'm here with... Uh, Sephora Woldu, a filmmaker based here in the Bay Area, and Damani Thomas, um, a spoken word artist and writer. Uh, yeah, well, welcome Hello. to everyone. Yeah, so Hello. NK, you... Hi, hi. So NK, let me, let me read the rest of your bio, and then... Um, okay. <laughs> are you, like, the founder of the Bacchanal? Yes, I'm one of the founders of Bacchanal. Um, the Bacchanal started in 2009 with a couple of other friends, um, Tossi Long and Kola Shogo. Um, Tossi Long is uh, from San Francisco and Kola is based here. And we were just like, you know, three friends who were interested in uh, creating events and spaces that like recognize a, a broader spectrum of um, black and African identity that we were all interested in. And so that's, yeah, that's how it started. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah, because I think I remember hearing you on Walter um, Walter's um, show, Walter Turner's Africa Today, with the other founders, and you all were talking about sort of exploring that whole notion of what it, you know, about, you know, African, the Pan-African diaspora uh, culturally. Yeah. And you are, 
a cultural organizer, producer, and multidisciplinary performer of Igbo uh, descent who specializes in Afro-urban culture and its intersections with personal identity, public wealth, and social political action. Since 2002, um, you have played a crucial role in ushering African culture onto the global stage from working as editor-in-chief of Nigerian Entertainment.com, NigerianEntertainment.com, a digital magazine, and as co-founder of One Three Snap Shot, and the three is the numeral three, an art collective. In 2018, you wrote and created What It Happened Was, an Afro-urban musical, a hot-blooded urban dance theater piece exploring a timeline of Afro-urban dance and music from 1910 to the present. Whoa, that sounds really phenomenal. <laughs> uh, you are a... Uh, is it Kiwetu? Kikwetu Honors Kikwetu. Awardee? Yeah, Kikwetu, Kikwetu Honors mm-hmm. Awardee, a 2018 um, NYFA Immigrant Artist Fellow, fellow uh, recipient of the Creative Work Fund and the MAP Fund. Other grants and awards include Kenneth Raynan Foundation, California Arts Council, the Zellerbach Family Foundation, the East Bay Community Foundation, Dancers Group Cash, Act of Living Cultures, City of Oakland, and uh, Akinati, uh Foundation. Currently, your focus is on expanding and sustaining grassroots change-making and community health through the production, performance, and embodiment of art and culture. You are a co-founder of Boom Shake, a social justice and music education organization and executive artistic director of Afro-Urban Society, um, which we are talking about today, the producer of <laughs> of the Bacchanal uh, uh, Day uh, Afrique Festival. And uh, Afro-Urban Society is described as an incubator and presenter of Afro-Urban performing and visual arts, culture, media, and social discourse. So um, I was wondering if you want to maybe talk a little bit about the festival and it's, yeah, it's huge. <laughs> and, and how people can, uh, you know, like, Oh my goodness. And and I just love the um uh you know, the tagline about um let's see, where is it? Something about riding a bus? Um what's it say? Oh me soon uh, come. Yeah, me, me soon for this come. Year. Yeah. Me soon me soon <laughs> come. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um I mean, you know, like I was saying about how like Bacchanal started, it started as an outdoor, you know, party and event like daytime event at um air lounge you remember air lounge that you know used to be um mm-hmm. old oakland like a ninth and so we did a th- you know we would have it inside and also outside and like i said you know we had this desire to really connect in the same space at the same event you know with the same movement like this idea that that you know, Africans and people, black folks, like we're multifaceted and there's so much to celebrate from all our different localities and our, you know, different um, places. And so over the years, Bacchanal has like taken so many forms, like, you know, one of the key pieces has been this uh, dance theater production that we've done um, and collaborated also with like Dance Mission Theater in San Francisco. And, and, you know, one thing that we like, that was holding for the festival was this idea that like the Bay area is so beautiful, so rich. Like I feel like even for me, I came into 
just a new level of African consciousness and identity coming here in the Bay Area. Like, I, I feel like I'd always had this context of, you know, being Igbo Nigerian and also, like, American with, like, New York and um, Southern influences. But, like, here was where I got introduced to Congolese. Like, even though, for, you know, even though, like, I have a close connection to the continent, it was, like, Congolese culture, Senegalese culture, Guinean culture, Brazil, Cuba, like, all these different things. And so I think there was just a thing to really hold that beauty in urban culture, like, to say, like, okay, you know, uh, having our traditional arts is so great. And then also there's, like, the new things that we're creating, the new languages, the new styles, the new music that we're creating every day. Um, and one thing that became even stronger was the desire to connect I think what we hold here in the Bay that is so rich, like we're a world of our own, but connect it outside of the Bay Area. Connect artists to know that there is this, you know, space and, and like rich international world. So in 2018, we had a couple of out of, you know, few out of town and out of country artists join us, like Yab Jolito from France, who's um, um, Côte d'Ivoirian, and um and it was just like, oh, my gosh, this Bay is dope. Like, I love this place. There's so many things here. And so this year we really were trying to, you know, figure out how to expand that, like expand the connection to more artists because um, I think just like as black folks, as people of African descent, as immigrants, we're always more than the place that we're, we're at, like, right? So whether it's like, you know, your family came from Louisiana, like, and so you know that even though you grew up in the Bay, you're from the Bay, there's, like, connections to, like, deep, you know, South culture, or, you know, you're Igbo Nigerian-American, and then, you know, you're, somebody grew up in London, France. So there's just, like, always, like, you, you have, multiple, like, a, a, a multi, multicultural consciousness. And so it was interesting because we were planning and trying to figure out how we were going to get more artists to come out here. And that would have, you know, limited. And once, you know, what happened, <laughs> shelter in place and COVID and all of these came, we really took a pause and we're just like, okay, that's cool. Like we're not doing it anymore. Like it's cool. Like it's fine. Like we're grateful for, you know, the, the ability to just chill. Um, but then I think like through, a lot of things that were just happening, like in, including like, you know, the intense like uprising that came about in the summer, like in the spring and summer and here in the U.S. and how it spread globally, that consciousness of like a black unity that I always felt was something so personal, but to see it just spark like that. And, and even before that, I think to see things like, you know, um, like like social media challenges and like different songs and music just be like crossing over more than it ever had. Like it felt like before I could only share, you know, these, these multiplicities of like my African identity with only a few select people. And now it just felt like, yo, like, you know, all of the internet was doing the don't rush challenge, you know, like the song by, you know, second and first gen kids in the UK that only African community had known like last year. And then now like everybody black, you know, or whoever was doing it. So it just became, um, it, it felt important for us to then expand, like to use this opportunity to connect. Like we, the thing that we had been saying we wanted to do, which was like really have Bacchanal connect to artists outside of the Bay. And not because we're trying to go outside of the Bay, but because we're trying to, acknowledge that we in the Bay are connected to, you know, like to people everywhere and that 
like what the the dopeness of the Bay Area artists here. Like we want to be able to be sharing that, you know, across the globe because we have those connections already. And so um, we decided to, you know, do a call for artists as well, like to also create a space where it was, it felt like more equitable, like instead of just being like, oh, here are the people we like, but really trying to provide an opportunity for people to discover and for us to discover artists that we may not know about or, you know, and so we, we just decided to take this leap and, and, and put this call out and we got so many amazing submissions. It was really hard. We had to like modify, you know, we, I think we had originally intended to be like, we're going to invite 10 people to be part of core artists. And then we invited 50 people. So, yeah. And so here we are, I'm going to let, you know, I'm going to stop talking now for a bit. Yeah. Because you have like 60 San Francisco Bay Area creatives and over 45 national and international artists. Um, and you have, um, let's see, um, just reading from the press release, um, you um, the month-long, mostly digital program will be a dynamic endeavor. Uh, the Bacchanal de Afrique will present more than 80 new videos, audios, visuals, 3D performance projects, artist talks, and interactive activities by some of the most innovative and impactful creatives, cultural producers, and masterminds from 12 countries and more than 40 cities across the Americas, Africa, and Europe. So um, I was wondering, uh, uh, Sephora um, and uh, and Damani, is this is this your first Bacchanal, or or have you are you like continuing from previous years? And uh, so we'll start with you, Sephora. And uh, again, you are an Eritrean American filmmaker, and you were named one of the 25 new faces of independent film by Filmmaker Magazine. And your work has gained audiences from the American Film Institute to Eritrean community centers in Philadelphia, Atlanta, Toronto, London, and New York. And you're the owner of uh, Abyssardian uh, Productions, a creative studio based in the Tenderloin of San Francisco. Uh, you received the Emerging Filmmaker Award, Indie Memphis, and the Jury Prize for Bold Innovative Innovation River Run International Film Festival. And your debut feature-length narrative film, Life is Fair, uh, I guess, oh, for your uh, debut feature-length narrative, Life is Fair. Um, when when um, did you do the film? Because I don't see a date next to it. Oh, yes. So, um, uh, like I said, it came out in 2018, um, and it okay. kind of lives on in, like, whatever mediums that, you know, or screenings that are happening in this COVID world. Like, there's actually a, an English class at the Dubai Institute of Design that shows my uh, film during, like, as, you know, one of the things that students can watch. So, um, the mm-hmm. film came out in 2018, but it still is, like, being watched in, you know, schools and festivals. Um, and, yeah, I'm based in San Francisco. I'm based in the Tenderloin, so... It's very lively out here. Excuse me if you could hear the construction happening next door. Um, and I love San Francisco. I, I love the Bay. Um, and this is my first Bacchanal de Afrique. So, I mean, it's another chance for me. It's like another way for me as a Bay Area artist to, like, stay in love with the Bay Area. I always try to find new ways to to grow here. And I'm super excited to be a part of the festival this year. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, and uh, and you um, you're currently developing a prequel um, to your film um, Aliens in Eritrea. Do you have a website that people can can yeah. you know check out your films and other work? Yeah. So um, 
everything that I make is available uh, on abyssardian.com. It's um, A-B-Y-S-S-U-R-D-I-A-N. But really the easy way is just if you go, you know, Sephora will dumb online, I'm on Instagram, but everything is on my site. If you want to see my films, you can find out how to watch them. They're available for download and Life is Fair is available for free. Definitely a film to start conversations. So yeah, abyssardian.com is the best way to learn about anything that I've done and what I'm currently doing, including aliens and Eritrea. Okay, yeah. And you mentioned that um, that you have a bright red, um, and I'll let you pronounce the name of the accordion, and um, and you like um, leaning out of windows or something like that? No, dangling yeah. out of open windows. <laughs> yeah, and I guess playing the accordion or what? <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, I I live in um I live in a studio in the Tenderloin in San Francisco, and um mm-hmm. I've lived here honestly my whole creative like I've been here for about nine years, and so I live pretty high building. It's an old building in San Francisco, and um it's one of those buildings that doesn't have screens on the windows. So whenever mm-hmm. I need some fresh air, I'll just like open the window and dangle my head out and you know yell proclamations into the city. So. <laughs> It's really important to me, and I include that in my bio, because it's a part of the reason why I love San Francisco. It's still a very strange place, and I like to keep it strange as best I can. Yes. How do you pronounce this uh, accordion? Is it Castle, uh, Castle Fidar- oh. Fidardo? Yeah, yeah. So my accordion's name is Mushu, which is based off of the um, dragon guardian in uh, Mulan. Mushu is mm. like the little red dragon that kind of watches over her from the ancestors. So my accordion mm. is bright red, and uh, Castle Castelfiardo is the name of the the town that makes these accordions. It's like a well-known brand from a very small region um, of the world. And I can actually just hold on. You can hear this. That's Mushu. Oh, good to meet you. (laughs) (laughs) How cool. Oh, cool. And you mentioned that you're going to be moderating uh, some of the panels. So tell us what else you're going to be doing. Are we seeing any of your films or a film um, during the uh, Bacchanal? Yeah. So um, uh, for Bacchanal d'Afrique, actually, I, NK reached out to me um, because of a Life is Fair, which is a film that has to do with transit, and it's about a cab driver from Eritrea who drives around San Francisco. Um, but this year, you know, a lot of things, happened and so I actually ended up making a new piece of work um that's in Bacchanal d'Afrique and it's about um it's about the SF it's about the, the ferry the, the Bay Area ferry that runs uh, between San Francisco and Oakland uh, during yeah. COVID and all the changes of this year um I found it really hard to kind of stay optimistic at times and so I would ride the ferry just back and forth straight from SF to Oakland back from Oakland to SF uh, and so the, the project that I made is about the ferry rides. Uh, it's called Therapy. Um, and so it's a short film about that form of transit in the Bay Area and how it helped me clear my head and how it helps me stay connected to, like, making films about Eritrea because I always think about the Red Sea, which is the coast that we have um, back home. And whenever I look at the Pacific Ocean, I just uh, pretend it's the Red Sea <laughs> when I feel homesick. Mm, mm-hmm. Right. Oh, wow, wow, thank you. Well, so we're going to come back, um, and you can tell us about home. Um, but we're going to let Damani, who's been so quiet, Damani Thomas, um, is Hello. a horror film fanatic. Hi. Whoa. Uh, horror film fanatic, Twitter subculture enthusiast, and dance lover. 
He is a graduate of UC Berkeley where they were a two-time member of Cal Slam um, 2017 and 2018, representing UC Berkeley at CUPSI, I don't know what that stands for, an international spoken word poetry festival earning the best writing as a team accolade in 2018. He was a 2019 Pink Plastic House resident. That sounds pretty cool. Uh, 2020 show us your spines. Well, these are some really interesting, descriptive, um, I guess, events. <laughs> Resident through Lambda Literary. Uh, Devani is a 2020 um, Fog Lifter Youth Fellow and a Bacchanal de Afrique Fellow conducting research on transportation and infrastructure in times of crisis. His work can be found in the Auburn Avenue Fog Lifter, Mary, uh, and Mary, I guess, uh, a journal of new writing and elsewhere. Oh, Damani, welcome, welcome. So you got a poem for us or something? You little, we're going to spit a little something for us? Wake us up. I mean, if, if you want, I can pull something up. You know, it's nothing. Oh, oh totally. That'd be super. And uh, I don't know if you can multitask, but as you pull it up, mm-hmm. you want to tell us what you're doing this time? Um, at the Bacchanal, sounds like you are, um, you've done this before. So you're part of the family? Yeah, uh, this is actually my, my first uh, Bacchanal Festival. Um, but oh. I, I I had the, the privilege of uh, virtually attending last year's festival uh, because mm. a friend was, was a fellow. Um, and I think that that really caught like my, my interest of wanting to do it this year. Mhm. Nice, nice. And I, and I have that you, poem for you. Yeah, the poem. Okay, before you do the poem, what are you what are mm-hmm. you going to be doing um, this year um, at the Bacchanal de Afrique? Yeah. So, so I'm a, a spoken word artist, uh, also experimenting with uh, like video. So this year for the festival, I made a project called Collage for Future Repair. And it it starts with the question the, the festival asked us to look at of like transportation, infrastructure, transportation systems throughout the diaspora. But it it focuses less on the, the physical forms of transportation uh, within the, the Bay Area, uh, where I'm centered now, uh, and, and looks a lot at transportation of the body, transportation, the, the first form of transportation within the, like, the black diaspora, and then it it tries to answer the question of what it looks like in the future, both through, you know, random media clips from my childhood, whether that be, like, twitches or sister-sister, uh, to, to dance battles that I went to uh, when I was, like, 15. Wow, that sounds really interesting. And, um, Thank you. Yeah, where are you from? I'm from I'm from East Oakland, uh, our deep East Oakland, oh. to be exact. Deep, deep East Oakland. Okay, we know what that means. But for those who don't know what it means, <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> um, so if you're not in Oakland or never been to California, uh, deep East Oakland is close to where the, the Raiders used to play, the, you know, the, the Oakland Coliseum. It's, it's specifically, I'm like 20 blocks from there. Um, but, 
you know, if, if you have never been to Oakland, deep East Oakland might be the area that, you know, TV shows tell you it's not safe to go to. Uh, kind of biased, but it might also be where all the culture is, so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> Particularly if you're there. <laughs> That's what the culture yeah, thank is. Thank you so is. much. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I used to live on 65th and MacArthur, and oh. uh, lived on um, uh, lived on over off a of seminary um, on 60th, and uh, mm-hmm. between seminary, not seminary, but between East 14th, which is not East 14th anymore, and uh, <laughs> and another street like below International. So that's a whole nother culture, right? <laughs> For sure. Yeah. Right, right, yeah. Ah, so we're ready now. Go ahead. You can share your Ooh. your um your your teaser. Yeah. Uh, so context um, in California, there maybe a, a month or so now, there was a, a really huge uh, wildfire. Um, this wildfire causes smoke, obviously, but that's that smoke blanketed California, and it it was so intense that it it like blocked out the sun or it made it so that we were seeing orange um instead of you know like a, a bright yellow for about 3 to 4 days it caused um all these health uh it like exacerbated certain health conditions you know outside of covid but it also made covid worse uh yeah and so this poem is titled a broken history of contamination. Somewhere an American military ship thanksgivings their way ashore, brings oil barrel as treaty. At this point, my state is burning, and I don't know what legality will do to stop that. At this point, ambiguity doesn't help, so a poem with two choices. Did the military ship bring bring oil waste or a resource for development? Was the military ship fighting a war or fighting hunger? Was it a treaty or an eviction notice? September 9th, 2020, a black Californian says their state is burning. Are they angry or choking? What fire causes the most casualties? Wild, cross, the barbecue at the end of a lynch. I find tooth calm histories to pay and discover. A double cross begins a marriage. A colonizer welcomes home another. A city engulfed in flames asks, what about the smoke? Wow. Yeah. Oh. That was excellent. Thank you. Yeah, that that um that orange day, that was that was pretty apocalypse. Apocalyptic apocalyptic, wasn't it? I mean, yeah. oh my goodness. Yeah. It's like, whoa. We didn't have a morning for a few few days. It looked like afternoon or evening, and it was eight o'clock in the morning, seven o'clock in the morning. Yeah, we did not need any filters um, for a while. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. So, what what day are you performing, or days are you performing? Yeah. Uh, so, so like Sephora, I'll I'll also be uh, emceeing um, okay. a, a day. Uh, so. Mm-hmm. My work will be presented on Wednesday, November 18th 
Uh, and I actually get the, the honor of having Sephora as my MC, so I'm, I'm excited for that. It's going to be a party. Yep. Nice, nice. Wow, wow. So, N.K., um, back to you. Hello. Hi. Hey. So tell us some more about the festival. You've got, like, all these artists. And, and I was reading that, you know, some of them um, – were featured in last year's festival, and then you've got some new folks. And, again, you are traveling the Pan-African diaspora, and some folks actually live here, which is great. <laughs> um, yes, yeah. and so and you have some collaborations with some organizations that are really cool. You know, you mentioned Dance Mission. Um, we've got um, Eastside Arts Alliance um, and some others. So, yeah, tell us um, sort of, you know, yeah, give us some details yeah. about the various days yeah, so and how how it's gonna look. Yeah, yeah. I mean, aside from you know, like the pivot to the virtual format, I think one of the things that the, the new key, the key features um, that the that characterizes this year is, I think, the difference between like last time. You know, the artists that came in were working, I think, super close, like under my direction of, you know, being like choreographing, creating new work. And I was, you know, I was like, here's the idea, here's the scene, here's the scene that we're exploring. And there was, I think, a closer relationship to like monitoring it. And this year, um, you know, we we did this the fellowship model, which was a, a period, you know, a, a structure of engaging artists over months, like, you know, like six months. And, um four or what three of that we started in august so yeah four of that is like leading to the festival most artists you know were already had to be done with their final works by by october so it's like was like six weeks where folks had to create you know do work and also for a lot of people some people like learning a new format so how to like create their work you know i do like a, a person who does sculpture or paintings and things like that is like how do i present this work virtually so so this new model, I think, took the theme or the handling or the creative expression away from me. So all I'm doing is, like, facilitating a space for artists to be able to create works that speak to the theme. And so I think, like, there's so many, like I said, there's so many things that are just different, like the, the vast amount of artists that are involved, the, you know, the places that we, we're traveling to where artists are formed, there's a good group from Kenya like I think we have probably about 10 artists or so that are from Kenya another from Nigeria and in different cities in each of those countries and then um, even here even while here in the Bay there are so many cultures that are represented like here the artists that are in the Bay we have Zimbabwean, Congolese, Eritrean, Nigerian, um, Salvadorian like you know all the you know Jamaican and all these different cultures represented and so so we really were thinking like, yeah, what is, how how can we create an experience knowing that, you know, I think the virtual realm is not our first choice of how you bacchanal, right? Bacchanal means party, it means celebration. And, you know, it draws like the, the word bacchanal is used a lot, you know, Afro-Caribbean cultures to, you know, it's like carnival, like people go out in the streets, they're partying and bacchanal, there's, you know, music and artistic expressions through costumes and all of those things. And so 
we have been thinking about like, yeah, what does that mean for us? Like if we're producing in virtual space. So there are a few different activities that are happening and events happening throughout the month. So starting on November 6th, which is next Friday, a week from now, um, we're going to be doing a live stream um, of DJ sets and, you know, like visuals, like slideshows that are being contributed from all the, the, the core artists that we're working with. And it will be like visuals from their life and their, their work. And we have um, DJ Cream, DJ Ladies, both here in the Bay, and Crowd Controller from Lagos, Nigeria, who have curated, you know, special sets um, for the, the festival. And, you know, you we're, like, asking folks to hop on. It's free. It's a free event. We're asking folks to hop on, dance, maybe, like, you know, invite whoever it is that you're getting together with in these pandemic times, like, to the, the same spot and, like, just, like, dance to the DJ sets, interact um, with our hosts. Like, we have the festival, the overall festival host, Tango Leaders, Inez Chanel, King Drewski, and Thobbs, who's from South Africa, and um, interact and chat and just, like, you know, have the, be the best party that we can, like, through the virtual form. And then other ways that folks can interact are, you know, artists like Sephora and Damani have work where you, when you, you know, you buy your pass, um, passes are sliding still from $5 to 50 or you can get an all-access pass to, you know, to not have to worry, just get your all-access pass and you can explore all the days of the festival, which I think is, like, totally worth it because it's, like, you know, like better than Netflix or anything you can like ask for right now. And so anyways, when you, you get a day pass, we, they're basically like content release. So you go in and you have access to content from different artists and there's a virtual gallery. Um, you know, you would get to watch the forest film, watch the money's, you know, spoken word, uh, um, driven film, look at photos from photographers. We have playlists. We have literary work, and you get access to all the artists that are featured for that day. And you can, and it's open. The exhibit is open for two days at a time for each um, slot of artists that we have. And so you can, you know, like take your time within those two days to really just check out each artist's works and like comment and and experience it on your own. Um, so we have four days. Those are November 11th, 13th, 18th, and 25th, and there are different artists featured on each day. And if you go on the website, you go on events, you can, um, you know, see what artists are featured, and you can read about them and, like, their art forms. The other, um, other couple of things that we have, we have a dance workshop that is happening in person, you know, at Liberation Park in East Oakland. And it's going to be outdoors. Um, this is a collaboration with the Black Cultural Zone. And so that's something that is, you know, really exciting to be able to activate that space because Bacchanal definitely is about, you know, like Bay Area coming together and celebrating our creativity. So we're going to be having a dance workshop led by Betty Town um, Steppas, which is a program, um, uh, on a dance ensemble from Afro Urban Society. And it's a bunch of teachers, different teaching different styles, and we'll be outside and celebrating, and we're glad that we're able to do something in person and be able to have access to space to do that. There is also in San Francisco on the 30th, um, we're, we're, you know, just stroll through, which is going to be a digital installation um, between 22nd and 24th on in the mission, and this is a collaboration with Dance Mission doing outdoor activation where you get to come and 
you know, experience some of the work uh, that has been created for the festival outdoors on your, you know, within the hours or two hours, um, five to seven, and just like check it out. Um, and then we have a performance driven event, which is a live stream, which is basically like you come in, you buy when you buy your ticket, this is 20, November 21st and 28th. 21st is the international release um, date. And so on that day, you get to experience work of, uh, different performance-driven work all in the same show. So it's like, you know, going to, like, BT Awards or something like that um, where there's a, 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 a slot of performances that are happening. It's a 90-minute show with comedy and music and dance and all these different things. And so that's a, you know, call everybody around that you got and sit down and, and then enjoy this show, chat it up, uh, laugh, um yeah, I mean, it's just like November has always been an interesting month. Like we've, you know, we've done Bacchanal in November, and uh, the I remember, you know, 2014 was like so intense because we just had this huge upset and like you know heartbreak uh, that happens, and it's always it, it always like feels like oh my gosh, like should we be happy? Should we be celebrating? Should we be talking about Bacchanal, you know, during like election month in for the U S and, um, and one of the things it's like, it's always important to center our artists. It's always important to have these spaces because man, you know, whatever, whatever the output is, whatever the result is, like we're here and we have to keep being here, you know, like those are the, the, our creative expressions and our joy and celebration and movement and art and, and love is the thing that we have is the thing that we want to have is the thing that we're fighting for. And so we can never ever um, erase that or have that come secondary. Hmm. So, yeah, so that's, you know, the month long experience starting November 6th all the way to the 30th, there's something that will keep you occupied. There's something for everyone. We have film, we have sculpture, we have, um, you know, visual art, dance, music. It's it's just the, the the artistic forms are diverse. The work that people have created, like speaking to the theme of transportation and its intersection with culture, class, and um, and um, identity, is just is it's been amazing. It's been amazing to see. I think the different paths like each artist has chosen, like, and what has come out of it. Like, I don't think anyone is talking about the same thing. Like, even though we all spoke and created work to the same scene, it's, it's, it's beautiful to see. And it's, it's world class, it's top quality, amazing work. Mm, right. And I was wondering, are are you, um, as, as organizer, are you also participating as, as you know, do you have work um, in the uh, Bacchanal yes. de Afrique Festival? And if so, what is it in? What day? What day? Okay, yes. Um, yeah, I mean, like I said, you know, this Bacchanal has been rooted in my own, you know, creative work and creative practice, even though, like, I'm always drawn to bringing folks together and being a producer. And so mm-hmm. we, you know, Tossi and I, who's my co-director and, like, you know, collaborator, is uh, we had been, you know, working on creating, uh, you know, a three-weekend dance music theater extravaganza, and um, 
and one of the pivots that we had was like, okay, we want to use this opportunity to connect with other artists and bring other artists in instead of just focusing on our own work. But we are creating a piece. So we're going to be creating a dance musical theater comedy video that will be featured on the 21st and the 28th as part of um, the Meese and Come performance experience. Uh, so if you, you know, buy a ticket on that day, you get to see our work. We're collaborating with the Films to produce the video and our Bedu Town um, radio ensemble that is a group of, you know, is like a 15-person ensemble mix of different performers, musicians, dancers, and we, you know, we were rehearsing outside and have created a new video that will be released as part of the, the festival for sure. Oh, that should be really awesome. Awesome! Wow. Well, um, thank you so much for hanging out a little bit longer than I I told you. So I was wondering, sort of in closing, if if we could maybe um, go around and maybe uh, you all could share um, uh, Sephora and and Damani and uh, NK uh, sort of closing about um, sort of the whole relationship of of art um, and and sort of you know the and social change, but, you know, the way I feel about art is that um, it, it keeps us human and it makes us human. <laughs> you know, like, that's what we do as as people. You know, we make art. It's something really unique to us, and, and that creative process is what keeps on sort of reinforcing the humanity of each one of us, so to speak. Yeah. And, and at a time when there's so much death and so much dying and so much fear, you know, be able to have something like this, like you mentioned, in the middle of, you know, um, like right after, you know, the elections, whatever happens, and in the middle of a pandemic and at the beginning of the end of of this particular solar cycle, you know, called a year, you know, and, you know, so it's, you know, the month before December. I wonder if you maybe could reflect a little bit on, you know, sort of, your your cultural take on just sort of the moment that this is happening in and your practice as artists. Um, yeah, and, you know, and also you could bring in sort of like how are your folks at home, um, you know, if home is elsewhere? Mm-hmm. So that's the question. And you can, you can take any part of it that you like. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, do you... Do you uh, Sephora, Damani, you want to go first? Damani, you want to lead the way? I'm still ruminating. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I can, I can take that. Uh, yeah, that's a powerful question. So, I, the, I guess I'll take the the first half, um, or at least that that's what's coming to me first. So, so I started writing. Um, I started writing like historical fiction. So uh, there was always a lot of research and documentation in the stuff I was, you know, writing, playing around with. And then I transitioned into competitive, you know, spoken word poetry, which I, I think asks you to to prove you exist in a, in a certain sense, um, or, or it asks you to to let us know, to, it asks you to open up. And I think when I combine those things in this certain in this certain time period of uh, you know an, an epidemic, uh, you know uh, overcrowded prisons and 
you know, people not really giving, uh, you know, imprisoned folks the the rights they need um, or, or deserve. And, you know, just a, a plethora of other things that, that might, you know, impact me or, or, my, or my family members. My, my artwork becomes even sharper because I, I feel like I, I've been tasked with, you know, proving why why these things are aren't okay to people who don't necessarily know or don't necessarily believe the same things. Um, yeah, so so I think that's that's my answer to that part. Um, and I, and I think my my family is doing the same thing in their in their own sense. Like my my mom and grandma are always tuned in to to the news. Um, they're they're always talking about things directly or like mumbling about something CNN said or something that happened in the, in the debates. Um, yeah. So, I, so I think we're, we're all dealing with things and, and trying to, to stay as informed as possible. Um, yeah. I think that's my answer for now. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Um, this is NK. Um, yeah, I mean, I feel like this question or, you know, like, all of the things that are contained in it, it's something that I visit, like, every week, you know, like, questioning, like, am I where I'm supposed to be? Am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Like, I feel like I always have this, you know, like, crisis, and it's, and it's interesting, um, you know, being in in place in Oakland, um, being in place in U.S., and then knowing that, like, anytime there's anything that we feel like pressure or feel like is the most important thing happening here and right now is not necessarily the reality for other people everywhere. And so there's always a question of, like, what is it that I'm – trying to center or champion like so even recently right with you know and SARS there is this look to be like oh okay Nigeria you're Nigerian everybody's like oh you have to come through you know for Nigeria and I'm just like everywhere there's something happening just something heartbreaking heart-wrenching mind-blowing happening everywhere all the time and so something that has been following me is just like you know, the question of, like, where can black folks really go to be free, you know, because I think when when you think, okay, well, you know, if the U.S. isn't really working, there's, like, oh, I can always go home or whatever, and I I don't, that, this it's not as comforting, you know, like, you just know that even there we're all, tra- you know, like, strangled by the same things, like, it's all connected, they're all connected, like, the things that are happening here are the same things, it's just, like, they just have, you know, slightly different aesthetics, right? And so I think for me, um, this, uh, I think, like, building tribe and using art and culture and artists to be the space and the geography that I'm in, so it doesn't matter, like, where I'm actually physically located, but that I'm in the consciousness of Sephora and Damani and that we're connected wherever we are is um, why this is important for me. And like you said, like, I, you know, I've all had the thing, like, you know, no matter what 
um, realm, you know, I find myself like an occupation, like I, I have a public health background. That's like what I, you know, studied. And, you know, there I always struggled with like how art and culture and like in essence, humanity like isn't centered in our efforts, right? Like in, in our outreach, like when we're trying to communicate with people in political organizing and social justice organizing, somehow we strip apart the essence of humanity. Like how do you talk to people in a way that feels so full and is, you know, celebratory and sees them in, you know, like the simplest um, forms that they exist. Right. And so it is, um, those are the things that drive me to be like, no matter how hopeless and enraged I feel, I allow myself to sit in that, right. To be like, I don't know what to do. I'm not sure if we're ever going to win or ever come out of this, but the art always pulls through for me. Right. Artists always come through for me. Right. Whether it's like, you know, Damani's words, like when, when someone says something that you've been feeling and don't have the words for, but a poet or a speaker like speaks it and you have that opportunity to release, you have that opportunity to to cry, you have that opportunity to, to tap into your confusion and your anger, right? These, these are what creatives do. Like if, you know, Sephora makes a film and you're able to watch and have like time be suspended while you are engaging with it, whether you're asking questions, whether you're laughing, whether you're crying, whatever it is that, that you have that opportunity, that's magic. The, the, like what creatives do unmatched. And then like just black folks in general, like every day we wake up and we create wall trends without even trying. Right. Mm-hmm. Like we open our mouths and everybody starts to <laughs> say whatever it is. Like, and so to me, it's, it's the center, it's the core, it's like what rocks the world, like you see influence of blackness, of African identity globally, even when we're not trying. And so right now, um, you know, we we even have, like we're doing a fundraising campaign called Turn Up for the Culture, and it, that is centered around that, the fact that like, yo, we, all your slangs, everything that you say was us like you know black creators did that and we i mean we get to celebrate that we get to enjoy that for ourselves as well but also um i think there's something to you know when you think about like how you have gone through life really not maybe acknowledging like how your parent or whoever raised you or showed up for you they're just there and then you think like man you like wow this person when you think of how, how much they sacrifice and like how it's in your own best interest to sustain that person, because that, if that person dies, you don't get to have what they've been given. Right. And so you can't just suck the system dry. Right. And so anyways, to, to me, it's that call to action to like really center and uplift me and other creatives and other people like me who like without effort or without, um, um, I think even, we just have a lifetime commitment to this, right? And we have, and there's an imperative also for us to document when we create artwork. It's not even just for people to enjoy and express. It's also for us to document time. Like we, you know, I think Reginald, who Damani knows, said this um, in June. Reginald Edmund, who's also a writer and a spoken word poet, was like, when we write, 
then we have something to reference because a lot of our stuff is, is lost and missing, right? And so writers do that for me, filmmakers do that for me, song writers, whatever the form, you know, whatever the form is when we, our time and place and our contributions. Um, yeah, so that's what really keeps me going. I don't know if that really answered your question, but that's what came up for me. Oh, yeah, yeah. I didn't have any preconceived answers, so it's all good. Um, <laughs> so, Sephora. Uh, sure. I mean, my my answer is uh, kind of a bit of both of theirs. To to to, to touch on what uh, Damani said, um, when I'm in moments of like real, where I need strength or I need inspiration externally or from like my culture, like I always I always feel that as diaspora, we have to like kind of grasp what we can being so far away. And so I actually um, really appreciate reading and listening to art that was made before me in, in, you know, a lot of our history has challenges in it too. So it connects me to like where I'm coming from, but it also reminds me and motivates me to still make stuff right now, even when things are really tense and frustrating and, and kind of tough because um, I, I so often rely on artwork that was made and like, you know, cultural contributions that were made and that I get to access. So it's, it's, it might not be used, but it could be used by somebody in the future to know like what it was like to be around right now. Like that's how culture continues. You got to just leave the breadcrumbs that we can. Um, I, I want to just do what I know. I appreciate others have done before me. Um, yeah. I don't know. I, I, I can kind of wander, but I always just try to at least share what I can or what, while I can. That's basically how, how I, how I always try to connect to my culture and get through time. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. Yeah, I like the notion um, that you mentioned, uh, N.K., about the documentation. You know, like if you have work, then, then you know, it lives beyond this moment. And, and it's yep. like, well, he or she or they were here, you know, because here's this beautiful song, you know, here's this lovely film, you know, here's this book or this poem or this this, you know, way of looking at beauty you know, yeah. um, because of the way this person interpreted it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then, you know, there's the memory of actually being in the space, you know, those that are yeah. actually able to, like, be in the space for the Bacchanal, the Afrique Festival uh, Global this year yeah. for all of these, almost a whole month, you know. It's like, yeah. wow, yeah. that's going to really change, change something for a lot of folks yeah. because, you know, yeah. a lot of people haven't been around that much African culture all at one time is sort of like sort of like raining, right? <laughs> like being bathed or washed in all of this wonder it, wonderful <laughs> it, it is. I like every day like I it hasn't gotten old for me. Like, you know, like I said, we've been meeting since August and like every day I'm just like, whoa, like, you know, we we had this I did this one video where I just had like everyone's headshots and I put them in and I just, like, mm-hmm. fell in love, and I was just like, oh, my gosh, like, every conversation I have with, you know, an artist or something, or I see something from them, um, we have artists right now who are doing um, takeover of our Instagram, um, so we have daily takeovers on Afro-Urban Society and Bacchanal, you know, page alternating, and, um, and I'm just like, oh, my gosh, like, it's, I'm still interested, like, you know what I mean? I'm still, like, wowed, and, and I just, I'm like, everybody, like, there's so much, like, y'all need to come get this, like, not even because I'm producing it, but I'm like, Mm -hmm. you're going to get your life, you know, in this. And 
and I think that was a thing that was interesting, like that was, you know, about around the opportunity to pivot to a virtual thing because we're like now we have, we have we're gonna have this website full of work of artists and it's it's there, you know, like it, it's there. It's like our own museum, like our own digital museum, um, Bacchanal Way, and so. I yeah I'm I'm just so there's so much to discover and it's so rich it's so deep it's so expansive it's so fun it's so um, multifaceted and yeah it's amazing. Mhm. Right. Yeah. And I want you to um, give the website again so people can get tickets. And and I was noticing that the starting price is like five dollars, and uh, which is. You know, yeah, that's pretty reasonable, which is great. Yeah, 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 yeah. So everything, all roads, all highways, all bicycles, all lorries, all trains, all everything leads to Bacanal, <laughs> the com. And Bacanal in this world is spelled B-A-K-A-N-A-L-D-E-A-S-R-I. Q-U-E.com, com. We're on Instagram. Um, you know, we're on Facebook. You can also find us through Afro-Urban Society. Like, if you go, Afro-Urban Society is the producer of Bacchanal de Afrique, but if you go on our website or our Instagram, you will definitely find information there. Tickets start at $5 for a day. We have also lots of free events as well. The Artist Talk, where you can, you know, come to the artist's we can listen to the artists talk about themselves on their work free of our opening party on Friday. It's free. The digital installation is, you know, San Francisco, but yeah, $5 and you know, like everybody should come through. There's something for, for anybody. Right. Yeah. And cool. And, and, um, I don't think you said anything about, um, about your family, but how is your family? Cause, um, there's stuff happening in Nigeria presently. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My family, I mean, it's interesting. You know, my, my parents are here. My siblings are here. One of my brothers is in Nigeria, and he's like us. So, you know, he's been keeping us updated. Um, he was out in the streets, you know. He was, you know, getting people together, and he's been doing a bunch of, like, you know, organizing and, um, you know, food drives and donations and things like that, and my cousins and everyone. I, I think that, like, I, you know, this this whole year has been something for people, so, um, you know, it's it's hard to say, like, oh, my family is good. I mean, technically, they're not in any direct harm, but it's it's still not comforting. You know what I mean? Because that that is not my vision for good, like, you know. So, it, it, but they are, we're here, and it's, it's, it's a lot to hold. I think there was, there's just, like, a new, a new, um, you know, energy, to this are new, like, oh, what are we going to do, right? And and I think that people are really having, like, reflections around what it means to, for change and, mm-hmm. and, and I think have to come to terms with if we're really ready to do what it would take, right? Like, if we're really ready to, like, change ourselves and our practices and, you know, the ways, like, we really see stuff, because I think there's a lot of energy put on I think, like you know, like the government, the government is this, and the government is this, and the government is this. But it's like, you know, as citizens also, what are we facilitating, you know, that upholds that at different levels, you know, at different class? Like what are the things that we're engaging in? 
what are the business, like as business owners or people who drive stuff, like how are we really conscious around, I think, um, not participating in, in those things and how are we connecting something? Because I think a lot of things pe- get missing. Like it's not just as simple as like end police brutality, but I think it's like the whole, the whole system has to be, the whole system, put the whole system in the trash, you know what I mean? And that like is going to take some change from us as as well, you know. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's the you know that's that's where we are. There, is, you know, it it does feel st- strange to not know if we're able to go home, like, and because it's like, oh, it, it, there there's just a lot of things at play, like in 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 being here and like trying to figure out if we're we're to be here or or there, and if we can go home, you know, go back or if we should be or, you know, so, yeah. It's a complicated question to answer. <laughs> right, yeah. And uh, Damani, um, can you take us out with another poem, please? <laughs> yeah, let me let me open the Google Docs real quick. <laughs> okay. Bring them out, bring them out. <laughs> and and while, while Damani is opening the Google Docs, uh, uh, Sephora can... Um, can Mushi like give us a couple of more um, uh, um, notes? That's hilarious. Sure. Um, <laughs> I should let you know I've known for playing the accordion with enthusiasm, but I'm not the best player. So. Oh, sounded great to me. <laughs> mm-hmm. This is hilarious. <laughs> okay, hold on. I did this yesterday. I was playing around. <laughs> That's all I can do for you on the radio without panicking. Oh, that was great. Thanks, Mushi. Yeah, thank you. That was great, Sephora. <laughs> thank you, man. It's a uh, therapeutic. The squeeze box is what they call it sometimes. Yeah, yeah, the squeeze box is awesome. Do you take it with you when you're on, when you're doing the ferry rides? Do you take Mushi with you? No. No, so the ferry is, like, my chance to just um, be, like, I'm a bag lady. It's my chance to be free, and I only, like, I don't even take my journal with me. I just go and sit and think and let the wind hit my mm-hmm. face. Uh, mm-hmm. And Mushi is sensitive. You know, accordions are really sensitive to wind. It's a wind instrument. So I just go there. Um, by myself, sometimes mm-hmm. with friends. But I think yeah. that might be a hit. I could maybe busk on the ferry. I've never seen a musician on it, so you might have given me an idea. Hmm. Ah, well, let me I'll know when you, you do that. that. <laughs> yeah, maybe I yeah, can pick up the ferry that. from the East Bay and and meet you. <laughs> It'll be a party. Because I see the ferries coming can... from San Francisco. <laughs> and Damani can, can read some poems. I could be his, mm-hmm. like... Instrumentation in the background. NK oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and NK could give us some moves to, to like dance to the poetry and the and the uh, the music. Ooh, yeah, that'd be kind of cool. <laughs> Here for it. It'll be very different. <laughs> Definitely memorable. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we have some options. I can do okay. a, a a shorter a shorter piece similar to the first one, 
or a longer piece? What, what do we have Whatever time you're for? feeling. Oh, I have, mm. we have a lot of time. Whatever you feel like. Okay, I I will do the... Oh, sorry? Oh, no, I was going to say, you could do the longer piece if you like. Okay, uh, I'll do the longer piece because it... Uh, it's more of like a, a high, higher tone, higher energy situation. Mm, uh, so this is after uh, Aditi Warrior and Aaliyah Bradshaw. Um, yes. And this is called Alive. To the gap teeth, to the suicidal thoughts, to homophobia, to the obituary headlines I have inherited, to the men that will call you porn star before your name. To everything that has tried to kill me and failed, I am here with my mother's face, my grandfather's gap teeth, and everything my father did not name me. See, I said it, so it's true. I have no space to be called dead. In this, I do not die. I've left all the hurt at home. This is the look how far we've gotten with how little we were given. This, a gentle reminder to be gentle to yourself, the New Year's resolution to keep moving forward even if we have to rest. I am 24 years young and cannot describe love without someone else's heart. So I'm working on that. Learning to love the spaces that exist outside of someone's hands, in other words, myself. To my past self that did not know where we'd be, I hope you hear me healing. I'm stealing all the good shit back. To younger me, you will be seven Frank Ocean songs deep and still have crying to do. And that's okay. Crying is just the body's way of letting go what cannot be said through the breath to every prayer sent to God without a response. I am leaving you there like a star. I know this to be true. I am enough to get everything I wish for on my own. I almost drowned in a pool once where someone would pull me out and instead my body learned to swim. My asthmatic lungs grew two sizes and swallowed a funeral's worth of water to save me to my younger self. When all the bad things seep their way into your memories and every thought is dedicated to a demon shadow, to coercion, to every sickness, to everyone that only wanted a part of you. You are blossoming by the minute, every hour a new petal owed to the space you take up now. When death asks how you know you're alive, tell them, I have names and languages I can't speak. All of them make me a dirty thing, but I am choosing to take them back. Tell them, the last person that tried to kill me was me. Tell them, you ain't got time to die. Tell them you're too busy drowning in sunlight from a while ago. The last time your family gathered was before your little cousin was born, and separation wasn't a name we gave to his family. Tell him, you're too busy putting ancestry back together to leave now. To my younger self, it is impossible to say goodbye to someone that has loved you for a lifetime. This is why we haven't said goodbye yet. And yeah, that might change tomorrow, but you're here now. This voice and all its breaking, these bones and all their stories makes you the first Bible story, which makes you holy worthy of amen and grandma's peppermint candies, to the gap teeth, to the names you call your own, to the fears you have conquered, you are alive. See, I said it, so it's true. Thank you. Oh, my goodness. Wow. That was so wonderful and powerful. Oh, my God, drowning in sunlight, bones and all their stories, gap teeth, beginning and ending, you know, like, Oh, man. Oh, that was so beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for blessing us with those those wonderful affirmations and incantations. Oh, my goodness. Uh, thank you again. 
Oh, wow. Such a conjurer. You are fabulous. You got a book or two or three? Uh, I have a chapbook that um, I wrote as a senior thesis, um, and it mm-hmm. it was the idea was I, I brought back a lot of like dead pop stars and just like people like media stars I grew up with like like Whitney Houston and like Static mm-hmm. Shock and I put them in conversation with each other. Um, so yes. Um, I have that, but I haven't made copies in a bit, and I'm working on a book, but that might come out, like, next year at some point. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. Yeah, well, let me know when your your um, your book that um, you're reissuing is out and, you know, when your next book is up so we can have you on. And definitely would love to have conversation with all of you all again. So, you know, like, let me know what you're up to and so we can do this again. And I'm looking forward to, um, wow, this wonderful celebration. I think we're going to need something like this um, no matter what happens because we're working really hard right now for democracy, right? And, you know, and we got, like, ah, so much opposition <laughs> to freedom and justice. So it's like, ah. And then even after, you know, the, the election and all that stuff, it's not over. <laughs> it's just beginning. So um yeah. yeah, we yeah, this is gonna really give us a charge. So thank you all so much for, you know, being those those bearers of culture and inspiration and freedom and liberty, uh, in a way that makes us move and feel good and gives us <sighs> gives us more breath so we can continue the movement, you know? Thank yeah. you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you thank so much you for, for having, having us, us, Wanda. Oh, you're quite welcome. I know you all have lots of rehearsals and things like that to put this huge Bacchanal uh, de Afrique Festival Global, you know, together, November 6th through 3rd. It's going to look like so easy, but I know that's because you all have been really working hard. <laughs> we have. <laughs> so anyway, you know, much, much, much success and energy around, you know, you know, sort of putting together those last parts and having all these rehearsals, make sure everything works smoothly. So we can say, like, oh, that sure. looks heck of easy. And it's just like flowing so wonderfully. And yeah, yeah, looking forward to being there every single time you are on. <laughs> so I don't miss Thank any you. part of it. You're quite yes. welcome. Yeah. Okay. And yeah, if I can um, get out to the uh, Liberation, um, is it Liberation uh, Park Square? Mm-hmm. Park. Yeah, Liberation Park. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Liberation Park. Where is yeah. that located? It's you know, like where Eastmont Mall is, like yeah. over there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. the Black Cultural Zone is like working to um create uh you know, like activate that area and like surrounding area, like to activate like blocks of, you know, um black owned and black uh created uh culture and businesses there. So you can right. look that up, you know, and, and yeah, learn more about it. Yeah, Brother Jay told me about it because um, I think um, mm-hmm. uh, the um, Community Ready Corps, um, they provide security for um, yes. the Black Cultural Zone and particularly for the um, Liberation Square. Um, yeah, Liberation I remember East Park. Mall, Liberation Park. I remember mm-hmm. East Mall had stores <laughs> mm-hmm. a long time mm-hmm. ago. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, you all take good care, and, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to see. Maybe I might come out. I've been, like, sheltering in place since April. <sighs> yeah. 
but yeah. I might I might be tempted <laughs> to come out and ah oh, dance outside. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of space, so you can just hold your you can just find your own corner, you know. Yeah, mm-hmm. and yeah, just yeah. don't have nobody touch you. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I'm gonna do that. I love dancing. Okay, that's gonna be. Yeah, I think I'm gonna do that. <laughs> okay. so I'll wave at you. <laughs> okay, yay! <laughs> all right, cool. Well, you all take good care thank again. You. Thank you so much. Thank you. Wow, it's thank been you. really, really lovely. <laughs> all right, peace and love. Have a, you too. Have a good day. Bye. You too. Bye bye.
Yes, you were listening to um, Alfara, who was a singer, songwriter, and ethnomusicologist. She was born in the capital city of Khartoum, and she spent four years at Wesleyan University studying music with a concentration in ethnomusicology. Uh, at the time of this um, recording, she was residing in Brooklyn, New York, and she performs music from different parts of the Middle East and East Africa. And more recently, her song with the Blue, the Nile Project, Salam Nubia, which we're listening to, was placed on Songline Magazine's Top of the World annual CD. And um, I um, had an interview with um, uh, some members of the Nile Project, uh, just sort of talking about what the Nile Project is. And uh, it was actually looking at the various countries that touch the Nile River as it makes its um, uh, journey up um toward the Sahara and um and and the project looked at sort of water security for these various um uh communities these various countries that touch the Nile because there are quite a few countries that touch the Nile and so um so anyway there there's a whole album and you could look up the Nile project to find out sort of who um you know what countries are a part of it, what musicians are performing, and they actually uh traveled um you know sort of the artists traveled throughout the country, this country, the united states um you know sort of um sharing this this particular project live uh, with audiences and I missed it. It was at u c Berkeley's Ellabach, yeah, so I listened to it <laughs> and i we talked about it, but i didn't i didn't uh, I missed the concert it's like oh McLeed, uh hadaro um she uh was one of the um i'm not sure if this was her idea, but she was like central to this particular project and and it was through her that I found out about it so anyway, um, I was just sort of feeling feeling the Nile project. And there's some other selections that I really like. But I want to play um, uh, a really wonderful um, interview that we had on Wednesday this week that some of you all might have missed um, And uh, because um, the global um, prayers start tomorrow um, on the 31st. I wanted you to hear this wonderful interview uh, with these two uh, medicine women, um, Iabeji and um uh ohin um um uh nedra um williams so uh yeah um Beji, kathy royal and ohin uh nedra and um and then we'll also speak to um joe uh crater um about the wonderful exhibit uh digital exhibit at Moad presently um, that looks at being proximate to those persons who are not um, present with us and that art exhibit is curated by Rasan, um, uh, New York. And, uh, and I'm, I'm drawing a blank on his surname, but anyway, I will mention it <laughs> uh, when, when I, when I uh, introduce um, Joe. And and then we close with uh, another a continuing conversation with Sister Sheba about um, about democracy and being um, present and participant in in this democracy. If you want to see your interests um, lifted and um, and enacted, so it's not a passive process. You know, being a citizen, it's an active word. 
It's an it's an act. It's a verb. So here you are, and uh, enjoy. Good morning and welcome to Wanda's Picks, a black arts and cultural program of the African Sisters Media Network. And that was Zion Trinity singing opening prayer for the African deity, Eshu Legba, a deity that lets us know that we always have choices. We are never victims. And we are so excited to have in the studio this morning um, two two elders who are going to let us know about how we can exercise some of those choices. Um, we're so happy to have with us um, Dr. Uh, Ia Beji, Kathy Royal, um, who is the daughter of Yemen Ja and has rights to the rituals of the ancestral societies. Uh, she also works to bring the spirit of the ancestors to the global African village. And she is the author of several books and writes under the name of Odulana, um, Oduluna, no, Dancing Storyteller. Uh, good morning, uh, Ia Beji. <laughs> good morning, Wanda. How are you? <laughs> Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> yes, it's Oda Luna, dancing storyteller. <laughs> you know, I didn't know that all the times I've had you on the air. I never, I never got this part of the bio. <laughs> and and More you're coming. oh, super, super. And then um, other Ia, um, Ohan Nedra T. Williams, um, whom, you know, you all are like, you go way, way back. I love to hear you hear you all tell stories. Uh, Ohan uh, Emeni, the doctor, is an Olakun priestess, healer, and visual artist from Oakland, California. She was initiated in Benin City, Nigeria, and was given her chieftaincy title in 2005. Uh, she is a member of the Egungun Society and performs ancestral rituals, ancestor rituals throughout the Bay Area. And um, Ohen uh, Nedra, Nedra T. Williams, you were mentioning before we went on the air that you've been a chief or initiated something about yes. 38 years. Initiated since 1986. Nineteen eighty six, right, right, yeah, yeah. And and you are joining us to talk about uh this council that you're a part of, um and uh and you all are gonna be um 
hosting some healing rituals, the Council for Global Ancestral Reverence and and the Ancestral Veneration for Seven Generations uh, is putting on a program called um, Council for Global Ancestral Reverence. Uh, is presenting Ancestral Souls Rising. And uh, is that seven days, uh, October 31st at 9 in the morning through Sunday, November 8th at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Um, I wonder if you could talk to us about this uh, this wonderful and powerful uh, series of programs that you are going to be doing. What are we going to be doing <laughs> globally? Yeah, do you want to take that? <laughs> I was just about to say, uh, E.I., do you want to take that? <laughs> I'd, be, <laughs> I'd be happy to. And the reason I'm going to take this part, because the history of how this wonderful event came to be really mm-hmm. rests with Oheen. The part uh-huh. that um, keeps me excited is the the message that came through um, the ancestors and the guidance that we have been receiving around the understanding that this is bigger than us. We are a spiritual community. Everyone in the council has a right to the sacred rituals of multiple Orisha as well as the ability to speak through the veil, which is a very special gift. Uh, given to people who have been initiated into the rights of the Egungun society. And the 31st of October is uh, recognized around the world in many cultures, not just African diasporic culture, that that is the time when the veil between the living and the dead is, meaning that ancestors are close to us on that day and can hear our entreatments. Please help us. Please hear us. We venerate you. We have reverence for you. And we are in the time of a pandemic, inside a pandemic, inside an epidemic. Your people, your children, the reason you existed are in trouble, and we need your help around the globe, not just Black Lives Matter in the United States. It's Black Lives Matter. The humanity of the world is calling us. And so we were called to do this, and it's amazingly exciting to see the response that has come from just a small word into the world and spoken into the universe, and people have responded in amazing ways. Could you tell us some of the um, the other members? Uh, yes, our council members. This is Ohi'imini uh, Nosopika. And um, our council members are, of course, uh, Ia, uh, Wanda, uh, Wanda Ravenel, Yeye Louisa Tish, myself, uh, Dr. Royal, and Alagba, uh, who is the Alagba of the Oyotunji uh, village. So it is. We are. We create and make up the council. Mm-hmm. Right. So, what's the plan for for these days, um, beginning on Saturday, the thirty first? It says breath, power, prayer. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. I wanted to do that, and uh, 
Well, breath power and prayer is the understanding that, uh, and this is another universal understanding, which is why we love our name that the ancestors have graced us with as a global council, because we know that the power of prayer is universal. It is global. So we're asking, uh, we've asked 24 priests or uh, spiritual people from around the world to join us in prayer starting at uh, 9 a.m. Pacific time, 12 Mm -hmm. noon, high noon, stroke noon, day noon, uh, Eastern daylight time, and going around the world, and all of these wonderful people, women and men, have agreed to put their power and their breath through prayer with us at that time. And it's going to take some time to go around the world, but everyone is starting at that time wherever they are in the world. Um, And we will witness that, and it's going to be broadcast. Uh, on YouTube oh. and Facebook, um, mm-hmm. there is a Eventbrite Ancestral Souls Rising uh, link that people can register. We invite you to come. We invite you to come with us to hear our prayers and to say your own prayers because it's not about a religion. It is about our ancestors and what has connected us uh, through all these years. And I know Ohini and Yeye Tish and Iawanda and Chief Alag, but we all agree that when we were packed in as enslaved Africans, even as we came to this new world um, by other means, no one asked and said, Yoruba to the left, Igbo to the right, Edo to center. They just said, this is our process. So we're turning that process around and saying, this is our process. We are putting our power and our breath into prayer to bring this down. Mm. Nice, nice. Wow, that sounds really beautiful. Mm -hmm. And if I can interject here, it is uh, going to be accomplished through what we call the nine layers of the soul as we Mm. go around our first day. Uh, will be the prayers of all of the uh, 24 people that uh, Ia has uh, articulated that will be there. And on that, also on that first day, we will have another um, session, and it will be uh, by uh, Yeye Teach on the universal soul, followed each day after that by the after the universal soul, we will go into the human soul, the sexual soul, the uh, racial soul, uh, <clears throat> from there to the astral soul, the national soul, the ancestral soul, the historical soul, and the guardian soul. Each will be defined by the person articulating that soul so that you get a, 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 a large breath that we Africans understand the soul as multi-layered and not just a singular Entity. So uh, that in itself is part of our education that we are bringing to uh, everyone that will participate and beyond. Because you can also go back to our page and go over and look at certain materials. Iyad, is there anything else you would like to add to that piece? 
Yeah, you did it wonderfully. <laughs> I would like to add that it has been a joy to work with the council. Yeah, um, there's so many things that we're going to capture in our history as we go forward, but the members of the council have been diligent. Uh, Ohini can tell you more about that. We've been working since April at a call from her, and so the the beauty of it is watching powerful women and amazing men who support us work together. So. I really want our membership to know that one of our goals is to advocate, and through that advocating, we are modeling how people of color, how African people in the diaspora can work together. I mean, I, it's been it's been affirming. I'm I, I'm completing myself there, Ohi. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that. Um... In this, uh, uh, taking you through the nine layers, uh, each person will articulate and say a prayer, not only uh, 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 that addresses that particular soul, but also about the people that have died in COVID, because one of our things is to express our deep grief and our way in which we are healing ourselves around the uh, epidemic that we are faced with uh, today understanding that that is from and descended from the Orisha Obaluaye, or what they say in uh, Africa, Sopona, who is the uh, god of pandemics and pestilence and those things. And uh, also for those that have been murdered through police brutality. So those are the things that we are trying to ask our ancestors to help us with and to articulate that through prayer. And also one of our advocacy issues is also we ask everyone to please go and vote if you have not already. That uh, the third is going to be a transformative time for us, whether you know it or not. We, uh, <clears throat> and so uh, I think I have sort of said that piece. In terms of the history, um, uh, trying to do this type of thing really takes the sanction of our ancestors and what we call the gods, the Orisha or whatever uh, uh, tradition that you are in, Loa, uh, or or whatever uh, uh, religious tradition we are, those those things that are greater than ourselves, that we are asking for that support. So in that, we had to also get a divination and a reading, and we are under the sanction of an Odu to perform these. Uh, uh, things I have, I had asked many of my other brothers and sisters and elders of, around to help in this because this is not a singular event to to try uh, not event a singular ritual to do so um, it was through the support of many and numerous people those that will be articulating in those particular days and even outside of those days that have helped us helped us to do this. Um, Ritual. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Any other? Yes. Yeah, I was well, looking at this really right. Mm-hmm. Oh, I wanted to ask you um, if I can interrupt you for a second, um, Ohini, um, Nedra, if you could tell okay. us about this beautiful um, uh, artwork. Um, looking in particular uh, at this uh, this piece as a part of the, um, um, I guess the visual, and. Uh, 
you know, on the uh, the website where you register, and there's a little girl who it looks like lights coming from her eyes, and she's flying, looking up, and uh, there's like a lot of greenery around her, like she's in a forest, and she has something in her hands that's uh, coming out of this um, container, and in her dress has stars and stripes on it, but it's in black and white, yes. and uh, and then there's an another, uh, looks like an older woman below her that's right below where she's something's coming out of this this container and then there's um the uh um i forgot the name of it but it's um from the haitian voodoo and um uh the the drawing it that's actually, right on that but mm-hmm. i'll tell you what it is okay yes yeah this and, is and, a, and the, a painting yeah, that's really the i was just describing for people who, who aren't looking at it but anyway go ahead <laughs> oh thank you so much um, yes, when you go to register, you'll see this uh, uh, a picture, and it's uh, the one that the council chose of one of my artworks. I was so happy that they chose this one. The name of it is called Maferifun Olokun. Uh, as we know, Olokun is an Orisha that is there at, uh, that brings us in and also takes us out in terms of the life cycle. Uh, and what you see in what it looks like for those that are familiar with uh, uh, writings to the ground or how we can speak to the the supreme beings or the supernatural beings, and um, this comes from the Edo tradition, but it looks like a Haitian baby. You're absolutely correct, correct, Wanda, but it's called an ohu in Edo, and it means a ground writing made with sacred chalk that is called Ephun, and um, uh, most Ohins are taught this once they are initiated into the Olokun uh, uh, tradition of how to speak to the uh, the Orisha, or what we call Ehi, in, um, on the ground through, symbo- through symbols. And the symbol you see there is the signature of Olokun. The woman rising is actually the spiritual thoughts of the woman that you see crouched in the bottom. I don't know if you didn't describe her, but there are turtles near her, and she's in a prayer position. Across from her is her godmother or a spiritual elder uh, taking her through a rite of initiation, ancestral uh, uh, knowledge, and the woman is... Is the one that you said is a little girl is really a spiritual being going up to the heavens to communicate all that is going on down on earth. So that's the one that was chosen, and that's exactly what we are doing in that in honoring our ancestors. We are basically the ground writers ourselves, sending our prayers up to our ancestors and to the Orishas to say, help us, support us during this time. So that's basically the um the meaning. Ah, nice. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, I hope everybody uh, enjoys the artwork. Now there's another uh symbolic ground writing itself that we have taken on more like a logo of who we are and that is a ground writing that depicts the uh it looks like a cross with the uh, arrows that are going each way. It's uh, the number four is very sacred. 
in our tradition, and it, it means many things. It means north, east, south, west. It, uh, it's the four corners uh, that we do rituals to the four corners. Uh, it is also the, the dividing of the world, dividing of the day and the hours and the week in that though tradition. And it is something that a uh, Ohin learns to draw when they're doing a ceremony to depict, particularly this one that I drew, is where offerings are given in that and on top of that symbol when you're doing a ceremony. So that's, we chose that to say that we are giving our words and our offerings through this symbol to be heard. And so that's the other part of the, the other one. And I don't think you would describe that, but people will see that throughout the literature, and it looks like a hand black and white drawing. Okay, yeah, I haven't seen that part yet. Oh, okay. Yeah, so thank you. Uh, Wanda? So to, oh, yes, ma'am. Uh-huh. We have been very um, intentional about the symbols that we use um, and about the words that we say. And so our work in terms of educating, we have uh, elevate, educate, and advocate as part of our mission and vision. And one of the things that we know elders are tasked with doing, especially when you accept and assume the role of an elder, is to be a model for the community. So. Our commitment is for seven years, for seven generations. And that means this generation that we are in, that's our work now. We reach back for three generations knowing that those ancestors, those who came before us are counting on us to carry this forward for three generations. So our education is to bring enlightenment awareness, advocacy, as Oheen said, around why we vote. Our ancestors died for our opportunity to vote. Um, also, why we're carrying out what the Akan call uh, a Sankofa. We are reaching back to retrieve that which was left behind by either uh, lost language, land, or culture, as well as enslavement. So we assume the role of an elder in all our mannerisms, and I think that was something that was really displayed on the council, and we want to have that out in the world as well. So not only do we want people to understand the power of their own prayer, but as Oheen said, even the deliberate in way that we do the ground writing, the way that we um, – create the prayers, the way that we came into existence, the way that we want to go forward. All of it is to preserve and secure the roles and rights and beauty of the global cultures of people of African descent. And that is not to say we're excluding anyone, but it is to say that right now the world needs to know who African people are and who they were, and that's our work as an elder council to educate, elevate, and advocate through breath, prayer, and power. And Ohini is an amazing artist. 
I just had to say that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you are. You really are. Um, I wonder if you could both, um, in our closing minutes, you know, talk a little bit about about the ancestors, and and why it is important, you know, to um, to call on them intentionally, right now. I'm gonna let uh, Yeah take that one. Well, yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. Right now, in this moment. We are the only reason that they existed. They died for us. They fought for us. They protected us. And one of the prayers that I'm authorized to deliver as an Egum priest, and one of the things that I affectionately say to people is, I can marry you. I can bury you. I can lift you up. I can pray you over. What I want you to recognize is that Your ancestors are always there for you. All you have to do when you have nothing but your breath is to reach up because they are always reaching down to support you. Mm. Ancestors are the key to the sustainability of a lineage. They are the key to understanding uh, who you are in the world and we know that in, in our own healing, both the things that happen to us as a culture, soul remembers. And the ancestors are a place of healing. They're a place where we can uh, look at the hurt and ask their protection, ask their forgiveness, and we can forgive some ancestors. It isn't written that you have to forgive every ancestor. And what we always say is that, You call your beloved ancestors. We will do a roll call of the communal ancestors, as John Lewis says, the beloved community who have fought for us and sometimes loved African people when African people did not understand how to love themselves. And so that's the healing. That's the reconnection. And they are are our lineage. They are our link to our history and to our future. So that's the importance of the ancestral reverence. Mm-hmm. Ohini, do you have anything to add? Oh, I have nothing to add to that. That was so beautiful. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, other than I do call on my ancestors uh, uh, every day and at this time when we are not able to uh, uh, do our burials and our funeral funerals the way that we do, uh, that now uh, you'll find a ways in which you can call them, but call on your ancestors every day. You don't always have to go to a shrine. I walk and talk to my mother when I need to. And these are the things that we're always connected. And so that's the only thing I would like to add, that stay close, stay connected during these times. And I say, very fun. You know, something. You, what you just said reminded me of something, Oheen, is mm. that, that the importance of that stay close, Wanda, because, yeah. you know, Sweet Honey and the Rock gave us the song that goes, listen more often to things than to being. It is mm. the ancestor's breath. And so what I know when I am close to my ancestors and my beloved, they, they guide me, they tell me, they show me. 
And this morning, one of the things that just as I had lost my watch, I was afraid to tell anybody I'd lost my watch. Mm-hmm. And I kept thinking the watch is in the house. I know the watch is in the house because I'm not out the house, so the watch is in the house. And so I was talking to one of my ancestors, and I was walking, and I was getting things ready, you know, for the ceremonies and things that we're about to embark upon. And the ancestor said, well, you don't have the tobacco. I went to get the tobacco, and guess what was with the tobacco? My wife. The wife. <laughs> and so it's just, you know, it's just that belief that they are me and I am them and that they will help me. He said, he said, Asheo, Ireo. So, um, uh, as, you know, as we uh, conclude, you know, this conversation about about the upcoming um, series of of prayers and rituals, um, could you tell our audience again how to um, to register for for this uh, free series of of ceremonies? Please go to Bright Ancestral Souls Rising. Click that. Register. It is a free event, and uh, it will take you to where you need to go. Um, so you can register before, get your link, and then hit that on the 31st. Your time zone, wherever you are, will be there so that you know when to begin uh, with us because we're in so many different time zones. Uh, yeah, Beji is three hours ahead of me from where we are now, so that uh, you will find that out, and all information is there on Eventbrite Ancestral Souls Rising. Anything else you need? Yeah. And, Wanda, we we will send you a link, and if you would post it in any of the places where um, you have social media, that would be so appreciated so that people can uh, go there as well as directly to Eventbrite. But, we're asking mm-hmm. all of our supporters to to support us because yeah. um, it's just going to be. I've seen a preview and it's brought many <laughs> of us to tears. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. Well, I've been um, sending it out since I got it uh, last week. So, and it's linked to this conversation on the website. But I wanted to want you to say it out loud as well. Okay. Wanda, thank you so much for inviting us and having us on your show today. We do appreciate your uh, contributions to the community, staying up, enlightening the community around, providing events and benefits for us to participate in. So we do honor you, too, in this. Thank you so much for your diligence and attention to us as a community. Oh, you're quite welcome. Look forward to... um, to seeing you on Saturday at the first um, first prayer. All right. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> we will be there. <laughs> All right. Yes, thank you, Fonda. And, and our gay lays will be to the stack. <laughs> yes, they will. <laughs> right. So, so each day um, when people check in, you know, for, for the global prayers, um, mm-hmm. How long? How long is the uh, the prayer? How long is this going to be each day? Is it going to vary, or is it the same length of time? Yeah, you take that one. Um, the now the the thirty first is going to be a lengthy time because there are twenty four priests praying, 
So okay. that's about that's about a two hour, two and a half hour event, but it goes around the globe, and I think everyone um, should stay and see all of that because that is just so beautiful. The next okay. days, the information on the layers of the soul, the nine layers mm-hmm. of the that runs between fifteen and thirty minutes, not much okay. long, not longer than thirty minutes at all. And I think that those are so wonderful, particularly for young people who have, who need, who deserve, who should know how to bring all parts of themselves, of their spiritual self, uh, their understanding of their global self, what it means to have a national self uh, together. So those are quite uh, timely as well, but not long. Okay. All right. Super. All righty. Well, uh, much success in your in your rehearsals and preparations, and again, look forward to seeing you on day one, uh, October thirty first. Yes, and thank you so much. I do play, do play on my fairy phone. My fairy phone. to be Thank you. Oh, how do you respond to that? How do what do I say? I do play. I do play. Okay. Yes. I do play. There you go. <laughs> That's the point. <laughs> That's easy. All right, you take good care. You yeah. Know. Right. Thank you, dear. Thank you. Peace and blessings. Claro. Hey, claro. Good morning, Joe. How are you? Good morning, Wanda. What a pleasure to listen to your guests just speaking. Thank you for having me. Oh, we're quite happy to have you. We we talked about you a lot last week, so you were here in spirit. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. So we've had you on quite a few times, uh, Joe Crater. Um, are you the founder and director of our um, Flyaway Productions? I am. Right, yeah. And you've been doing this decarceration series of beautiful Work, you know, choreography as well as collaborative work, um, uh, and and yeah, then taking it on the road. Trilogy. Like you went to Sing Sing, like whoa, really? we went to Sing um, Sing. We're going to New Orleans, if you know, COVID ooh. willing. We're going to New Orleans next year with the uh, with the project with the first in the trilogy. So yeah, it's um, from 2017 to 2022. That's the commitment I've made to the trilogy. And we've made and performed and toured the first one. The second one is made but postponed because of COVID. We were supposed to perform it a few weeks ago, um, but it's on hold, but it's all made. And we made a film of it, which is currently being edited. So we've kind of made a film as a placeholder. And then the third in the trilogy will happen in 2021 and 22. Mm. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but so tell us, yes. No, go ahead. No. Well, you said um, part of the work is not just making dances, but being in collaboration and in coalition mm-hmm. building with um, artists and non-artist organizations. That's something that's really important to me. Um, I feel like that lays art inside of frameworks that gives it visibility and also connects it to what really is happening in the world and what is important in the world. So, um that's a lot of how this art show came about is from that philosophy that um, we don't just make our dances and, and, you know, conjure our audiences and do that, but we as an organization and as a group of dance artists 
um, reach out and connect. So, so here we are right. connecting to you. Right. Yes. Yes. And we're connecting to talk about you know this wonderful um, work that uh, Moad um, is hosting uh, as a as an online um, uh, art exhibit. Uh, Meet us quickly. Painting for Justice from Prison, um, which is uh, curated by um, Rasan New York Thomas, um, and uh, he is the Prison Renaissance co-founder. And uh, you could tell us more about about Rasan and how you know him, and and this wonderful exhibit, and um, yeah, and what what the collaborative plan for this with regards to Flyaway and yourself and Moad. And I think there might be some other folks that are involved in the collaboration as well. Yeah, absolutely. Ben the Ark Jewish Action is the fourth in the um in mm-hmm. the coalition. So in two thousand eighteen I put out a call for a black change maker to work with me. Me being a choreographer, a white woman, a Jewish artist, wanting to make a piece that um call together black and Jewish voices to look at mass incarceration um, to um, influence its ending. And Rasan is someone who responded. And um, to be in relationship with someone in prison is not foreign to me because my partner was incarcerated for several years. So um, I, I was so grateful to hear from someone who is working um to connect with the world from an activist stance um, who was willing to work with a choreographer. Um, Rasan knows nothing about dance. <laughs> um, and uh, he's a writer. He's a writer. He's a lot of things. He's a writer. He's a filmmaker. He's um, one of the co-hosts of Ear Hustle. So we connected. We've written 45 – well, now I wrote that about three weeks ago. We've written about 46 letters back and forth. Mm -hmm. I visited him twice. Um, I was about to bring one of my dancers to go visit him with me, and then COVID happened, and so we lost that connection. Um, We're on the phone as much as possible to um, work together, and um, he hasn't missed a beat. We wrote a little article about working together, and he said he always writes back to me the same day he gets my letter, which is true, which is such a great discipline. Like, how many of us do that with an email, you know, like you get an email and you're like, oh, yeah, I got to answer that. And then five days go by. He's incredibly disciplined <laughs> in um, communication. And, um, you know, communication is a challenge when someone is behind bars. And um, in the federal system where my husband was, they had email. And I think some of the state facilities have email that San Quentin does. So uh, it was mostly letter. We got to know each other through letter. Um one of the things we did was we, each of us, and then we also worked with this woman named Shana, who is a professor at FF State teaching a class in black Jewish studies. Um, anyway, she would uh, suggest books to us. So we would, we would read books together and write about them with each other. And that was a really good way that we got to know each other and got to understand our point of view as a collaboration on black Jewish relationship and mass incarceration. And one of the best things that happened early on was I told Rasan that I made this piece or I was wanting to make this project because I really wanted um, Jewish people to get more connected to understanding what 
mass incarceration is and what our prison system is and is not. And um, understanding the connections of race and capture that Jews and blacks have. There is a connection. It's not an exact match by any shape or form, but there is a connection being targeted and um, othered for your um, for your identity. So Rasan called me out on that, and he said, you know what? We can't just say, um, how can Jewish people amplify the call for racial justice? We need to say, how can Jewish and black people work together to amplify the call for racial justice? Because to say, you know, what can the Jews do is an expression of white saviorism, and we don't want that. So that was like the beginning of the depth of our relationship. Is It was so um, on point and so, uh, I want to say, easy for him to just say, no, Joe, that's not it, without judgment, without, um, you know, it was just a great invitation. Uh, Rasan is a beautiful human in that he knows how to invite a shift in thinking without uh, judgment, and I really appreciate that. And I think for him, um, because, you know, I live with someone who caused harm, I offer the same um, non-judgmentalness as we work together and as we come to understand each other. And so one of the things that Rasan asked very early on is let's do an art show because let's put forward the art of people who are currently incarcerated. Great. Neither of us are visual artists. Neither of us have ever put together an art show before, but we committed to it. And um, that's how we connected with Moad. And Elizabeth Giselle from Moad is just a beautiful human who really understood and really wanted Moad to have a little bit more real connection to um, the current issues of incarceration and how problematic it is in the black community. And so my going to Elizabeth and saying, do you want to work with us on this? And so she was like, absolutely. It was like a little blessing for them because Moad had been thinking about connecting to um, incarcerated artists but didn't have the vehicle and so suddenly Rasan and I show up and say we'll, we'll do it with you um, and Rasan was incredibly proactive in gathering the art really early it's been sitting in my basement for six months um, because somehow he knows that you know with prison there's a level of unpredictability things go wrong and in fact COVID hit and it completely shut down our relationship in terms of mail and like mailing the art. If he hadn't mailed the art when he had, I wouldn't have gotten it and this whole thing wouldn't have happened. So, um, you know, kudos to him for being, um, having foresight into being really organized and um, having the relationships that he has with folks who are artists working behind the walls and saying, yeah, there's this art show, get me your art by this deadline and get me your bio and get me your statement and get me your materials and you know, so um, I just give so much credit to Rasan for um, socially, politically, culturally, and humanly being so on it. Mm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about some of the books that you all read and discussed uh, from your list? Oh, yeah. I'm just going to swivel my chair over and look at my bookshelf and see, <laughs> let's see, what's there. Um, well, uh, we read the book 
by Cornell West and Michael Lerner called Jews and Blacks. And it's kind of a controversial book. Um, Michael Lerner is a, is a controversial figure in the Jewish community. A lot of my elders who are Jewish who I spoke to said, oh, I don't really like Michael Lerner's work. Um, but we read the book anyway, and it was a great way in because I have found one of the most thorough dialogues between a black and Jewish scholar. And um, Cornell West is just, to me, I have so much reverence for um, the way that he thinks and he talks and he frames things. Again, that generosity, but also pointed realism in his politics. Um, so that was one of the first books we read. And then a, the, another book we read that was really significant for both of us was a book called We Are Not Afraid. And um, it's by Seth Kagan and Philip Dre. And it's the story of Goodman Schwerner and Cheney and the civil rights campaign in Mississippi. And um, Rassan really wanted, he didn't know of this book particularly, but he said, let's read something from the civil rights era. Because Rasan and I are both um, in our 50s, and we have a memory, though it wasn't our lived experience because we were babies then, but we have a memory of, oh, there was coalition between blacks and Jews in the civil rights, but we didn't, in the civil rights movement, but we didn't know that much about it. So we chose this book because um, it featured, you know, two Jewish young men and, and one African American young man who were very active in Mississippi, and they were, of course, um, executed, murdered um, by people connected to the sheriff's office and the sheriff's office itself in Mississippi. So it was quite a wake-up call. Um, and this book that we've read, We Are Not Afraid, is written by two journalists, and it's um, it's so detailed that it was really hard to read. Like, it, it took us both months to read this book. And... Um, but at the same time, the depth of information really um, grounded the history and grounded the connection and through line from slavery to the slave patrols to Jim Crow and um, the Deep South, where um, in the 60s, you know, the level of racism led to lynching and execution on a regular basis. And then drawing that through line forward to Rassan's life and him growing up in New York and um, being growing up surrounded by, you know, violent deaths of black people, his brother, his father, um, people in his immediate life. Um, his, his, what he calls, um, one of the things he writes about is his regret for participating in the genocide. And he is someone who took someone's life in self-defense. And um, that's why he's serving a, a long-term sentence, a life sentence. So drawing those connections came from reading this book, We Are Not Afraid. Um, and it gave us um, uh, a dialogue to talk about. And then the third book um, is a book about uh, women, women's um, experience in the Holocaust. And another really dense book, it, it's a book that came out in 2000. 19 and it's written by Agnes Grunwald Spear so it's a relatively new book and it's the first really thorough documentation of how Jewish women resisted um, resisted in the camps resisted in the cities and um, some of this history I knew Rassan was less familiar with Jewish history because it's not his story 
And it also, it just grounded us in the reality of day-to-day resistance. Um, there was one woman who was a, a middle-class Jewish woman and, and kind of lost everything and made the choice to, um, she took this red coat and um, tore it up, cut it up, recreated it, and um beat it up and dressed in it and she didn't bathe and she didn't wash herself. And so she basically dressed, disguised herself as a beggar walking through the streets of Berlin and made herself so um, unapproachable because she was dirty and she smelled and she was unclean and, and she chose all those things as a disguise so that she wouldn't be thrown into the camp. And that was just one, one of the stories that struck me. And in fact, her character shows up in my piece, Meet Us Quickly With Your Mercy, that is going to be shown hopefully next August when COVID allows us to. But anyway, um, Rassan learned a lot about the history of the buildup of, um, you know, the Nazi war machine and seeing connections between that, what's going on now, seeing connections between mass incarceration and the um, massive rounding up of Jews simply because they were Jews. So um, those are some of the books we read. There, there are more. But. <laughs> yeah. Um, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about um, the other parts of the um, um, of the trilogy. Um, how many? Yeah. People? I thought yeah, you were going to um, say of the coalition building, but because um, uh, I do want to oh, talk a little no. bit about the you panel. Can talk possible. about that. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. So. So the second in the trilogy has three components. It's the the dance performance, public art performance outside, which is on hold. Um, It's the art show, which features um, 13 artists who are currently um, working from their cells in San Quentin, though actually Antoine Banks is is out. So um, 12 artists inside, one artist who's gotten out. And, um, And then the third part of the project was the panel, the panel discussion um, between blacks and Jews. And it was moderated by Robin Levy and Ashlyn Nett, um, who identifies with they pronouns. They work with Ella Baker Center and held space as a Jewish voice. Emil De Weaver is Rassan's partner in um, the founding of Prison Renaissance. And he was um, uh, at San Quentin and has now been out for a few years. And he was on the panel. And Eric Ward is an activist working out of Portland and the Northwest and is, to me, one of the most profound thinkers of the 21st century, as far as I'm concerned. And so um, the four of them were on the panel, and it was a really rich conversation. Um, I think one of the best things to come out of it was um, looking at the delineation between white supremacy and white nationalism, white supremacy. And this is Eric Ward's definition, but I I think everyone in the room learned so much from hearing this. Um, White supremacy being an emerging form of power about building power and white nationalism is building power specifically through ethnic cleansing of blacks, Jews, and indigenous. What was most profound that Eric said was that each of these phenomena as their own origin story. And I thought that was a really profound way to think about the way these systems have developed um, and have destroyed, but they're not the same. They're a little bit different. 
Um, white supremacy is written on the paper of race, a false binary of black and white. White nationalism is white nationalism is written on the paper of anti-Semitism. And I love that Eric, as an African American man, a scholar, or activist, doer, really understands the depth of connection between anti-Semitism and anti-blackness, and um, that I think is a really important story to move forward. I say that as a Jewish person, it's important to me that that connection is made and pulled forward. And so Moad, the art show, sort of understood that. And one of the things Rassan did is um, there were uh, there was an artist who is both black and Jewish whose work is in the show. And there there's another artist who created a portrait of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And this was before she died. So the timing was really, um, you know, pretty timely that this portrait is created of her and um, and then she died and now it's at Moet in the art show. So, yeah, I did just want to mention that the panel happened and um, it was a really in-depth conversation. There was just no BS and it got really deep, really fast. Um, and that was wonderful. So um, I think there was an understanding, and this was said, that mass incarceration is the linchpin of American racism, and it also reveals America's failure to listen. Um, you know, as we have collected um, the the um, the outcomes of American racism over time, and this summer really being, you know, the summer of race rebellion really being, um, you know, yet another um, opportunity for people like me who are white and Jewish, who are not black, to come in and say, yes, I am going to be a part of changing this. Um, so the art show and the panel and the, the performance are all ways to ask us to come together and, and watch and learn and do. Mm-hmm. Right. And I wanted to um, let our audience know that the uh, the panel was recorded and you can actually um watch it on um on the uh, Moad YouTube channel and you can also when you go to this exhibit um which is um moadsf.org meet us quickly forward slash black and jewish you can actually or just go to Moad and click on current exhibits <laughs> and and yeah. you know when you go into the um uh, to that particular space, all of the different um, supplementary um, aspects to the art show are, are also available. And um, so the piece that you mentioned, Black and Jewish, is by Orlando Smith, right? 11 by 14 mm-hmm. inches, mm-hmm. ink and colored pencil, yep. on paper mounted on foam core. I want you to talk a little bit about the piece because um, it's, uh, it's got a lot of writing in it looks like a, a cartoon strip. Yeah, I think he's a graphic novelist. Uh, I mean, a graphic mm. artist. What do you call that? Gra- mm. I don't know what you call that, graphic. See, I'm not a visual artist. <laughs> I mean, I've I've learned so much from, um, you know, engaging with the art here. So, um, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I one of the things I love about the work is um, about this artist's work is the protest poster that he made um, where it features Flyaway Productions, Museum of African Diaspora, Prison Renaissance. Like he, he documented the history of this, oh, and Counterpulse is another partner in this project. 
I forgot to mention oh, because the dance yeah. is happening on their building. Um, mm-hmm. But that he, you know, in creating a piece, a piece of art, he also documented this moment of history, which is Rassan's and I's little corner of the world where we made something happen. And um, so now it's documented in the art show. And, and I find that really, um, that was really moving to me. Yeah. Right. Do you want to tell our audience a little bit about the story in the in the piece? Since um, uh, you mean the what, the one that O Smith made? Yeah, that um, that Orlando made. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, uh, I don't. I I I I would say no because I would never want to speak for him. Um, I don't know why he made the choice to. Um, so he, he works with pen and ink and, and a little bit of color, so it's not black and white, it's pen and ink and color. And um, it's it's uh, um, sort of in the style of, of uh, graphic novels. Um, again, I don't know exactly how to describe that, but um, but he made the choice to name all the partners in the work and then um, have representations of folks who seem like they're inside the system and um, uh, I think there's maybe some version of me in here. (laughs) We've never met so I'm not really sure Um, but it's very much a protest poster and and it's protest series number 19 he calls it. So um, that's about all I know. You know Wanda I'm sorry to say I don't know that much about um, the origin stories of each of the pieces and of course, I wish the world was different and we could have all the artists on your show um, because they really <laughs> should. Nice. And they could talk about they, the they work. They really should yeah. be thinking for themselves. Um, I, I mean, one thing Orlando says about himself, he's out to achieve critical success among his peers in the genre of comics and graphic novels, um, which he writes to expose injustice in the criminal system. He started out as, as a tattoo artist, and you can really tell in the artwork. Mm-hmm. And he says, but drug abuse and criminal activity landed him in prison with eight life sentences due to the three strikes law, which is one of the most unfair laws in the world. Um, he's a self-taught 53-year-old illustrator and political cartoonist born and raised in South Central L.A. Um, so I'm sorry I'm not really answering your question, but I'm not that no, comfortable no, talking in detail about no, no, I, how I the art wanted- no, no, I wasn't at one. I didn't want to know an origin story. I just wanted because I haven't read it, and so I just wanted uh, you to tell us what the different boxes were saying. Because I, because you've uh, seen it, you've yeah. lived with the work, so yeah. that was all. But yeah, there's no problem. It's actually um, right here in my office. I'm literally packing up the art and bringing it over this weekend to Prison Renaissance because the art is being auctioned, um, mm-hmm. and the sale of the art will go directly to the artist. Um, you know, which is really important. Some of them are collecting money for defense, legal defense. I know Rassan um, is mounting a whole new level of legal defense, and I know he's not one of the artists, but um, uh, I know that one of the other artists in the show, and I'm not sure which one, is also um, mounting um, some legal defense work. So um, important that I'd love your audience to know is that the art is actually for sale, um, Prison Renaissance is the website, and on the MOAD website, you fill out a letter of interest, like a little form, a Google Doc form, uh, to say what form you're interested in, and then Prison Renaissance is 
taking care of the logistics of the sale of, and the auction. And that is going up in November. The auction is opening in November. But so literally, I'm staring at my, all around my office, littered with art. Littered is the wrong word. It's blessed with being filled with art <laughs> that we're um, wrapped, wrapping in bubble wrap and shipping over to Oakland um, this weekend. So, yeah. Um, but you um, had asked me um, about the whole of the trilogy. So the first in the trilogy was about women with incarcerated loved ones and what is our story and how is our story a love story and how do we carry the burden of incarceration. And so that project happened in partnership with the Ezzy Justice Group. And the second in the trilogy we've been talking about. And the third in the trilogy is part, partnering with Community Works, who are based in Oakland, and really puts our money where our mouth is in investing in restorative justice um, and using art as a tool in restorative justice. And so that project is going to be a collaboration with Community Works, which I just said, and Mad Lines, who's a hip-hop artist, composer, writer, um, and she's worked with me. Uh, this will be her second project with Fly Away. And, um, and then a core group of dancers of Fly Away, um, many of whom are either survivors of violent crime and or have uh, incarcerated family members. So that's what where we're headed to in 21 and 22. Mm. Wow, wow. Yeah. Mm. Well, you're really busy, and wow, it sounds really exciting, um, you know, the work that you're doing. And uh, my other guest is in the studio, but I wanted to um, ask you in closing, um, about flyaway, uh, it's it's literal uh, in that um, you you choreographed um, in in ways that defy gravity, and uh, I wonder if you could talk about flying and and how you came to enjoy that particular type of movement. Yeah, we dance off the ground. Sometimes we're two feet off the ground. Sometimes we're a hundred feet off the ground. We're most often flying off the sides of buildings. Um, I have very big vision. My work is big and very expensive, unfortunately, which is kind of a hard choice for an artist to make. Um, the origins of my work really date back to two women, Terry Sengraff, who is really seen as the founder of aerial dance internationally, um, and also Joanna Highgood, whom I danced with for many years and whom I still um, collaborate with as a teaching artist in her youth program. Um, in the Bayview, and she is a long-term friend and mentor who has really um, influenced the direction that I took in fundamental ways. And also um, another sort of cornerstone of how I do what I do is through study with Master Lu Yi, who was for years the primary trainer at the San Francisco School of Circus Arts. And um, so those three people are really my elders and my um, mentors in how I've gotten to where I've gotten. Um, and then working with my dancers to invent and invent and invent in how many ways we can fly through the air and how many objects we can fly on, off of, and through. So the, mm -hmm. the working process, though we are hierarchical in that I am the director and determine sort of the large story, of how we do what we do. The development of the work is very collaborative and the dancers' knowledge and wisdom and bodies are really key to um, the invention that we um, 
partake. Mm-hmm. Right, and and I think um, you know, Fly Away uh, in collaboration with Rasan, um, who is representing you know visual artists um, who are incarcerated. So um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and they're flying you know through through their art and through their various creative mediums. Um, and then you all are actually flying, literally. Um, I think that's a really great collaboration because, um, you know, each of you, you know, uh, so far as the company and these artists are able to collaborate in ways that, you know, you said you're not a painter. <laughs> and then they're no. not able to fly, like literally. Right. So, you know, so it's really nice, you know, the way that, you know, each one can sort of take off where the other one sort of leaves off. Um, to be able to make the whole vision, um, you know, more expansive around what does it mean, yeah. you know, to have um, this particular punitive type of um, of uh, system abolished. So anyway, yeah. 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 <laughs> and just to conclude, there was one little bit of story I wanted to tell, which is that completely separate from each other, Rasan and I were both influenced by Brian Stevenson in a very similar uh, way. Um, <laughs> you know, he Rasan had the fortune of meeting Brian Stevenson in person and hearing him speak, and I read his book, and then I heard him speak when he spoke at an American for the Arts event. And he, for, for me, the phrase, get proximate to the marginalized, is what really called me in. And uh, Rasan was really called into um, being proximate pulling people proximate to him as someone whose voice is clipped right now because he is behind the walls and communication is difficult and all of those things so um i love that we were kind of at the same time but not knowing each other really influenced by the same idea and phrase and human being being brian stevenson and that Mm -hmm. you know years later that brought us to each other Right, right, yeah, definitely. Um, just mercy and uh, and his his call for us, you know, to be to think about being proximate, but also just sort of thinking about the whole idea that, you know, it's the brokenness, you know, that that sort of we connect around as well, you know. Um, yeah. And and because when he was asked, you know, why he's so interested in you know defending people that are on death row. And and he said, you know, within like in his first in the book, he talks about how when he's sitting in front of this this young person who is the same age as him, and they're having this conversation, he says, "I have a message to you that you've gotten some more time to live," and 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 just sort of seeing that transformation that took came over the person that he was delivering this message to after he had had a lot of trouble getting into the prison to be able to deliver the message in the first place. You know that story that he tells. Such a great storyteller. It's just awesome. Mm-hmm. And then his, um, uh, you know, the the National Memorial for Peace and Justice and the Legacy Museum for Slavery. Have the you Legacy been Museum. to see it, Wanda? Yeah, I, I'm a Brian Stevens expert. <laughs> I teach his oh books. Oh my god! I, I really I've seen him talk. I, I was I was there. You know when it opened. Um, the, uh, oh the National Memorial mm-hmm. and Legacy Museum from Slavery to Mass Incarceration. Yeah, I was there. Um, only problem you know, is my friend didn't my... want to go to the church where he, I think it was one of because Montgomery, Alabama, everywhere you turn is some, some, some really historic African-American history. 
and he spoke at that church, um, Dexter, uh-huh. I think, Avenue. Um, I'm not sure. Not Dexter. I'm not sure. It might be Dexter Avenue. I'm not sure, but there's a famous church, and he was there. But my friend told me, oh, I don't go to church. I'm like, oh. And then I heard, like, oh, man, you really missed it. Wanda, this lady that I met at the airport coming home, she told me she was there, and she told me about it. But, uh, yeah, Stevie Wonder performed that evening at this big program, and it was just, like, awesome. And then Brian Stevenson has a, a Bay Area story in that he was an intern as a a, um, a young law uh, student at the Legal Services for Prisoners with Children in Oakland. Used to be San Francisco. Oh, I think I know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's Dorothy Nunn, uh, is the executive director. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, so that was like amazing because we I I saw them in Montgomery too, and I'm like, hey, Dorothy, I'm Dia, you know, all the folks. <laughs> As, uh, um, the uh, attorney for the organization at that time, Day, and now she's at UC Berkeley in the Underground Scholars Program. She's running that. Mm-hmm. No, I think oh, I think she might have moved on from that, but I'm not sure. Yeah, so anyway, we're just rambling, and I'm rambling, and my other guest is there. But you had you, you were going to say something, and then I really need to get to Sheba. Go ahead. <laughs> oh, I just wanted to say that, you know, it's been I, I my plan to bring my son to um, the Legacy Museum before he graduates mm-hmm. high school, but then COVID has kind of ruined our plans a little bit. So I hope that I'll be able to do that. He has two, two, one and a half more years of high school, so that's my mm-hmm. plan. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Well, Wanda, yeah, it's thank amazing. you so much for um, hosting me. And Rassan says hello. He, he knew that oh, I was going to cool. be talking with you, so he has <laughs> met you before. So he yes, says hello. Yeah. And, um, okay. Um, yeah. Keep up the work, and I hope we'll talk again as the trilogy moves forward. Yeah, well, tell Rasan that I'm 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 not I can't do I'm not as as um, uh, disciplined as him. Uh, I I I am going to write that letter so that so that we can oh, have good. a uh, have a letter conversation. You know, at least. Uh, but maybe you know, I mean, he could call me. Um, maybe you, we could talk about that because that would be a lot easier <laughs> to talk to yeah, about the art yeah. exhibit. You know, on the phone. You know, um, if that works out. So let me know it's how. It's very. How, you know, we could. It's hard for him to set a time like that's. Oh. That's an outside the walls construct. You know. Mhm. Yeah. Setting a time. Yeah. It's it's mm-hmm. yeah, especially right now with COVID, everything is so wacky right there. But that's a whole, that's a whole yeah. other conversation. Yeah. Well, let's talk about it because it's okay. He doesn't have to set a time. Just just set a day. Ah. <laughs> uh-huh. All right. Yeah, day would be good. You know, what day? And then we can work on the time. I mean, you know, I can be flexible. Okay. And then we can get cool. his voice. That would be hot. That would be really cool. Oh, that would cool. be awesome. Mm-hmm. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> but thanks, Joe. It's been good talking to you. Okay. Thank you, Linda. <laughs> You're welcome. You take good care. You too. All right. Peace and blessings. Good morning, Sister Sheba, Makeda Haven. How Good morning. Are you? I'm Good well. Morning. How are you? Can you hear me well? Oh, I can hear you very well. And I got your Excellent. bio and everything. Um, so we Yay. can. This is part two. Yeah. I'm sorry the, uh, I didn't send the picture. <laughs> oh, that's okay. No worries. Um, so this is um, part two of the uh, Activism 101 with uh, Sister Sheba. Who writes, she was born in South Carolina at Fort Jackson Army Base 68 years ago. 
She is the eldest of five children of Harold and Carol Grayson. Her father was in the Navy during the Korean War, and her family lived in Alameda, California, until she was 12, and then they moved to East Oakland. During her childhood, uh, civil rights workers were killed. Uh, Malcolm X was assassinated. Black churches were bombed, and Martin Luther King Jr. was killed. It's like, whoa, like one of those things would have been traumatic, but all of them? Like, my goodness. Um, she is the mother of one daughter, Attica Georges. Uh, he says Attica Georges, and he says, is married and divorced twice. Is that you or Attica? I was married and divorced. <laughs> Me. Oh. <laughs> I was married and divorced twice. Well, this is the wedding. I said Attica was married and divorced twice. <laughs> No, that was me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and you've been an activist since junior high school. So you started telling us, you know, some stories um, last week. And um, mm-hmm. sorry that uh, I ran over with my previous guest. So um, oh, no, we might no. have to have a that we might have to have a part three. Oh, well, cool. I really I'll... enjoyed listening to it. That was very interesting, and that's very important work. And mm-hmm. I think that uh, using art in activism is a is a very uh, is a concept that lasts through time because even when the uh, prisoner is released, that concept remains. Yeah, I like that. Mm-hmm. I really like that. Right, and and you're an artist too. Um, you know, words yeah. myth and and, um, and you yeah. yeah, you do. Um, what is it? Textiles, right? Yeah, I do a lot of textiles and. Since uh, since I moved to Sacramento, yes, and jewelry, and because of the jewelry, I had to study fine art because I want to uh, become a fine jeweler. And uh, when I studied lost wax casting, um, I had to I went into the um, fine arts department at Sac City, and mm-hmm. I'm in Eureka. I live in Eureka now because I want to go to school because number one, I want to breathe clean air. And number two, one of my uh, goals um, is to uh, study jewelry making at uh, at Arcata at Humboldt State University, which is like the second oh. best school of jewelry design in the United States. And it's world mm. famous for, um, oh my God, Yoshi, I'm forgetting the, how to pronounce the name. It's a style of jewelry of anodized um, copper that uh, was oh. developed at Humboldt State University by one of the professors there. Mm, nice, nice. Oh, I hadn't yeah. known about that. Well, I'm, I'm glad I'm glad yeah. you were on with uh, with Joe, so you could tell us this other little nugget about yourself. Nice, nice. Yeah. So, yeah, um, so wow. It's still, yeah, it's still um, it's still the the art concept and and a lot of uh, and also as a poet. You know, a lot of my uh, poetry, all more, for the great majority of my poetry, is political as well. Mm-hmm. Right, right, yeah, yeah. And um, you um, were talking to us about about how um, to change policies. You have to be patient, and but you also have to be present. And I was just yeah, wondering you what your thoughts are. Yeah, I, Diligent, yeah, yeah. and I was just wondering. Diligent is a better word. Oh yeah, diligence, no problem. Yeah, um, yeah. diligent, and and maybe have have something to do with your hands while you wait. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you yeah. know, for your turn oh, to yeah. see uh, on these various um, uh, 
um, you know, in these various meetings that happen um, with and without, um, you know, the, the community present. But I also wanted you to talk about, um, you know, since we're um, you know, we're we're a week less than a week away from the election, and it's a big one. Um, I was reading yeah. in National Geographic that this is going to this is probably going to be the largest turnout in the history of elections in this country. Um, I think so. Yeah, yeah, because because there are like people lined up voting early, and uh, yesterday I dropped my ballot off, and I've got a um, yeah, and you know at the at the courthouse because I'm like I told my daughter no, don't put anything in the mailbox. You need to take it by the courthouse. So I'm gonna have to go get there. They're gonna sign them over to me because they're not going out. She said you have to get out your car. I'm like yes, yeah. and just put put your arm out the car. You got to get out and put it in the slot. So. Yeah, so anyway, um, I was wondering if you have any thoughts because you told me that um, at one point 18-year-olds couldn't vote, and I know on this particular ballot we are looking to to move the age to 17 for those young people who are going to be 18 that same election year. Um, So, yeah, I want you to talk a little bit about sort of what, what your thoughts are, you know, as you think about this particular uh, election and and the power of the people to cha- make change and and your you know being an elder you know having you know lived through some of these things and and now you're on the oh, other yeah. side. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were talking about uh, the war in Vietnam and how that led to the uh, the to 18 year olds having the right to vote. And I did I did look it up thanks to uh, Google. That it happened in, uh, uh, it was ratified at the end of 19, in uh, what was June of 1973, that 18-year-olds could vote. What had happened was um, when I was in high school, there was a lot of anti-war uh, activism, and it was also coinciding with the uh, the Black is Beautiful movement. Uh, so we, we talked about that in the context, voting in the context of the Vietnam War, that people were being killed who could not vote. They were being sent to war without the right to vote. So that did happen. And um, from that, from the civil rights era, the, the, the right to vote been a key strategy in in freeing black people from uh, white supremacist madness, right? So that right now it's on full display and it's so and even what you were talking about, putting your ballot in the mail, I am amazed that that uh, with the white supremacists in the White House, they would be so bold as to tell people that if everyone votes, the Republicans would never be elected. And that mail-in ballots are fraudulent so that here is my political hack who's going to make sure that the mail does not go through, which is a federal crime. It's amazing that they would be uh, so bold. And so I'm really happy that uh, so many people are voting. I'm really glad that the whole world is watching and that the whole idea of America being a great democracy has been exposed as a, a a myth as propaganda and marketing, right? So, and uh, even the whole story of the Electoral College 
making sure that uh, poor whites were kept in indentured servitude, another word for uh, eventual for slavery of one generation, and that uh, that the Electoral College was also installed to preserve slavery. So this is, for me, yay. It's, the, it's a time of, of pending celebration. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah. So, um, so talk about you know talk about your your um some of the high points in your work as an organizer and as as a leader. Well, I would say that um, the first thing that I got involved in was an after school program. It was peer led, and it was led through uh, Havens Court Community Church. That was my first. Uh, foray into the world of activism and to see that as an activist you could actually make material changes in people's lives. The uh, One of the attractions for me, later I joined the Black Panther Party. I joined first, I'm skipping, first I joined the Black Student Union in uh, high school at Castlemont High School. And uh, we were dealing with the issues of Vietnam. And in uh, and some of the effects of de facto segregation, because we had uh, hand-me-down textbooks, so you would have your math book would have pages missing, your social studies and uh, and science books would have pages that uh, had been uh, drawn over, or you know, because the the new books went to the white high school up the hill, went to Skyline High School. So there was a race and class differential even in our high school studies. So so, the, so the, you see how those things sort of continue on. Joining the Black Panther Party, there was also an emphasis on um, literacy and, of course, funding because the, one of the civil rights movements, SNCC had introduced the idea of the Panther Party in the South. The uh, white folks voted under the rooster and black folks voted under the Panther. And with that symbol, people uh, could uh, pick their candidates and their issues. So those, for me, it's like one continuum and I see the 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 progress, like we were talking last time about the idea of a spiral. It seems like you're going around in circles, but the movement is still forward. And um, that's where we are, so that's why I call it a time of uh, pending celebration. I recently moved from uh, Sacramento to Eureka, and uh, you know how you sort of edit your collection of finding things for the archives. It's about uh, time. BPP committee has an archive that's uh, curated by Billy X, and I keep coming across stuff that I'm going to send to uh, Bill Jennings, also known as uh, Billy X. Billy X, and uh, one of them was a letter from a political prisoner named Noah Washington, and he was talking in that letter. He's He's now with the ancestors, but he was talking in a letter in 1996 that he wrote to me. We used to correspond briefly about the importance of voting. He was talking about the importance of um, 
continuing to have people write letters to prisoners and how important that was. And so I was really happy to uh, listen in on the sister talking about the art project that she's doing with the prisoners. So, yeah, to me, it's all one it's all one continuum, and I'm really happy to see the young people moving it forward. Now, what we were talking about was the, the tedium and boring aspects. I mean, art <laughs> is exciting. <laughs> Going to city council meetings and county board of supervisor meetings and state commissions, that stuff is boring straight up. You can wind up falling asleep in those meetings, especially the city council, because the city council does a lot of conversation about the sewers. And that was uh, one of the things that we were talking about was that sewers are, like, vital to a city. And uh, and I think it's a good metaphor for uh, some of the things that, as an activist, we have to get rid of some of our our stuff in healthy ways, though. <laughs> Just uh, dump stuff. We have to get rid of it in uh, healthy ways. And, uh, and I'm saying that with my stuff, I have to uh, downsize because I'm in old folks' home, right? And um, I also have to, uh, re- I mean, I don't have to, but I find myself uh, cherishing some of the memories that are attached to my things. So I want to preserve them, and that's why I put them in the archives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I want to mention, um, you know, sort of conjunction with what you were saying about city council. I want to let people know who might not be aware that tomorrow, Thursday, October 29th, uh, at 1.30, uh, the Oakland City Council is going to consider whether to sell the Oakland Coliseum land to billionaire John Fisher. And this is from um, uh, from attorney um, uh, Pamela Price, who ran for uh, mayor. Um was it last year? Um, in the, in the last May, or I think it was last year. And John Fisher um, is a staunch Republican who donated nine million dollars in 2012 to a dark money group opposed to President Barack Obama's reelection. He owns the Gap stores mm-hmm. and the Oakland A's. He wants to own the Coliseum land as well. And so the call is for people to call or zoom into the city council meeting before it starts at 1:30 tomorrow, uh the 29th. The sale of the Coliseum land is item number 2 on the agenda, but you have to pre-register before the closed session begins. And she gives a link to the closed session and um I don't know where you could find this, but um I'm sure it should be on the website for the city of Oakland for the webinar information. So you can get the information. And then to make a public comment by phone, you can call Erie Coates 669-900-6833, 669-900-6833. And then you enter the webinar ID, which is 826-0660-6593. Again, that's 826 826- Zero six six zero six five nine three, and uh, and then she gives talking points, and so let me see if I have a um, a uh, email address for Pamela Price activist, and her um, 
Her email address is justice at pypesquireesq.com. So justice for Pam and then Y Price, pypesquireesq.com, to get all of this information if you're interested because it's too much for you to write down. <laughs> the talking points because she goes into great detail and she's on point. So I, if anyone is available, I highly recommend that you do this because um, she's great. She's really great and she does Wonderful. get back to folks. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. I agree. I remember when the when the the money was set aside to build the Coliseum and people were advocating for it to be spent on the uh, school system and mm-hmm. on uh, other community projects. And so that went ahead with the idea that it was going to produce jobs and revenue for the city. So amazing. Again, the, the idea of a spiral, and I hope that y'all uh, do not <laughs> sell sell the Coliseum to a bigot. Yeah, yeah. It's just so, it, you know, there was so much activity over in that part of Oakland before they – um, shut it all down, you know, sold all the land, um, demolished all of the uh, the family-friendly, um, uh, you know, um, I guess, uh, projects there, you know, like, like the, um, you know, the, uh, what was it? Um, I'm trying to remember. Um, the golfing, the miniature golfing, the... Um, the movie theater. I mean, there was a whole lot of fun, family fun things over in that area of mm-hmm. Oakland that are yeah. gone. And then there was like nothing there for like a long time. And then they started building, you know, housing. Yeah, it's um, you know, it's kind of you know, it became a really dead area when it had a lot of activity and a lot of life, and we had things to do. I mean, I don't know how things would shift now because of the pandemic. However. You know, there was a whole oh, lot yeah, of there were, there were many years between the building and um, and them tearing down all of those different um, uh, you know edifices before that. Similar to what they did mm-hmm. in Fillmore, you know, when they uh, you know yep. just took yep. all all the homes and ran everybody out, and it yep. was just like it was just like what do you call it? Um, Gentrification. Yeah, but before the gentrification, you know, when it was just like, um, I forgot what you call it, but when you like. Oh, redevelopment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, it was redeveloped because it was, you know, like it was an eyesore and it was, you know, like nobody was living there and it was da-da-da and it was like, but people were there. And then you're you're right, yeah, you know, it was black at, remo- at removal. Slumlords. yes. 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 It's interesting mm-hmm. how these euphemisms come about to uh, to cloak capitalism. Basically, there were a lot mm-hmm. of slumlords in Fillmore, right, and in the Western edition. And the same thing was true in Oakland. And it would. And I hope that one of the uh, talking points is that that land can be used to reduce homelessness, which is the scourge of Oakland right now. Mm-hmm. Oh, amazing. So, so yeah, yeah that would be great. Yeah, some of these issues, um, one of the other things that Noah talks about in his letter is about scourge of drug addiction. And some mm-hmm. of these issues really got out of hand when uh, when uh, crack and, and other drugs became so powerful in the community. 
that uh, that people basically took their eye off the ball, and and a lot of these problems were worsened. And when I was in the Black Panther Party, we were talking about housing fit for the habitation of human beings, and now so many people are unhoused that it's uh, it's like its own uh, epidemic within a pandemic, right? So. Or a pandemic within an already existing epidemic, and the connection between uh, moneyed interest and health is is uh, is so stark. Even in what you're talking about with the billionaire, so if the billionaire and the dark money hadn't been employed so heavily to oppose first uh, Barack Obama and then deploy to prevent the election of uh, Hillary Clinton, not one of my favorite people on the planet, but I do not think that she would have destroyed the office of uh, pandemic response. You know, so some of these issues are so uh, clear that, like I said, I'm uh, pinned in celebration. Because I think people can see what's happening and they can feel how it touches them personally. And uh, that's what that's when politics changes. Is when people, is when uh, when it touches people individually and they know it, you know. So when it's not the other person that's suffering, it's themselves. So I think that uh, this is like a, a a pivotal point in history, and I'm so glad that so many people are taking part in it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Have there ever have you ever um sort of um have you lived through any other type of um uh where it was this, you know, um I mean there was so much at stake and 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 what and if so, what was the outcome? Was it favorable? And if well, not, uh what did you do? <laughs> yeah, well, with Vietnam, we did we did not win. We got Richard Nixon. <laughs> Very important. Okay. Bobby Seale mm-hmm. got locked up in 1968 along with Abby Hoffman and a bunch of white activists. Mm-hmm. Protesters were, uh, peaceful protesters were shot and killed by the National Guard. And mm-hmm. still, that election was uh, lost in regard Richard Nixon and the prolongation of the war. So that, uh, so that was uh, very important. The, um, and then prior to that, both uh, Robert Kennedy and John Kennedy were assassinated because of their pro-people politics. And I know these are like reformist politics or what we call progressives now, but these people were outright killed for having, uh, for not towing the, um, what I call the vulture capitalist line, you know, where the, where People have the same attitude, just not as blatant as uh, that orange thing in the White House now. <laughs> says that uh, that uh, it is what it is. People die every day. I, I mean, some of the things that he says outright have been going on all along. He's just really blatant with it, you know. So, so I'm just I'm in a way I'm really glad that he's so dumb that he says out loud the things that they have been trying to hide for years. He's a, ma- he's a quote, master of marketing, but he just, when he tells 
the truth, it is so it is so blatantly murderous and uh and depraved that that people respond to it regardless of whether they're in favor of it or not. And the people who are in favor of it have the appearance of uh, cult devotees, you know. So it's very, uh, it's a, it's a. I think it is a very pivotal time, and I, and I, and I think it's probably that all the people. I agree with all the people that are saying this is the most important election of my lifetime. Yeah, I would say so. This is uh, even even with the murder of candidates and presidents. This is even more important than those elections because the the uh, there is a punch of uh, political nudity. Let me put it like that. There's a lot of political nudity, and you can't unsee that stuff, right? Mhm. Hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And. Um... So I was just wondering, um, is there any anything else you'd like to share around um uh encouraging, you know, young people in particular to um you know, to, to let their voices be heard and not be deterred and to be yeah. um, you know, vigilant and diligent and and yeah, make okay. sure that yeah, that they, you know, make this world work for them. There's a, a short poem that I wrote a little while ago. It's um, mm-hmm. we what is it? I'm standing on the shoulders of giants, and I'm close enough to hear them say, "Our children must be free." So I invite you, like me, to stand upon the shoulders of giants. And let me whisper in your ear, your sisters and your brothers must be free. And that's, Megar Evers is still dead. Hmm. Megar Evers so, is still dead. Yeah, so I hope that those who don't know who Megar Evers is find out. Right, yeah, yeah. Oh, that was beautiful. Yeah, that was really Thank beautiful. You. Yeah, and I want to let you know and let others know so you can tune in that um, there's the Gwendolyn Brooks, um, Gwendolyn Brooks uh, um, conference going on presently, and it's oh, free wow. and it's out of Chicago, and uh, uh-huh. and let me um, let me find the details for you just a second. Um, Sister Bisola told me and. Um, and I can't do two things at once, so I can't. Okay, yeah, well, there. I have my uh, But I registered. <laughs> but it's the twenty third. It's the Gwendolyn Brooks Center for Black Literature and Creative Writing at Chicago State University, and it's the twenty third Gwendolyn Brooks Black Writers Conference, and um, it's a virtual experience, and it says quite a long, quite a time for loving Black love in the new century, and it's um, today and tomorrow, and uh, it's free. And um, I will, um, I'll forward this to you, um, uh, oh, Sheba, right now. Yes. And uh, and for those who are interested, I will put this um, in the description of the um, of this program, so you can join as well right now. <laughs> wonderful, <laughs> so I'm wonderful. It to you, Yay. Sheba. 
and uh, thank you so much. And I look forward. To, yeah, yeah, and uh, you can tell me what I miss because um, I uh, I've got to teach a class at ten o'clock in twenty minutes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, you take care, and, and I know that your students are in for a treat. Okie dokie. All right, and I wanted to know if you could give our audience a way to, you know, to follow your work and to be in touch. Um, wow. I'm going to send them to the It's About Time uh, DPP.com website. And okay. uh, and because right now I'm uh, I'm sort of uh, silent. I'm, uh, I'm still unpacking. So <laughs> I haven't. I haven't decided how I'm gonna uh still interact except through the uh except through the archives. I know that uh Billy accepts articles from old Panthers about uh what they're doing and and short biographies and stuff like that. So I think I have one up there. And um so yeah, go to It's About Time and on the About Time there's two T's dot dpp dot com and you okay. can see a lot of uh uh black panther history curated by a black panther which is uh a rank and file black panther which is really important so it's curated mm-hmm. from that point of view okay all right excellent excellent well you take a care sister sheba and it's always a pleasure to speak to you all right thanks so much wanda you have a lovely day you too peace okay, bye bye Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. So we are going to, um, I have an interview with um, Stanley Nelson uh, talking about Vanguard of the Revolution, um, which is his film on the Black Panther Party, and I haven't listened to it in a very long time. So I'm thinking that might be a nice way to um, close the show out. And, uh, yeah, so enjoy. Of the African Sisters Media Network. We are joined uh, in the studio by Director Stanley Nelson, and he's been a frequent, we're really happy to say, um, guest on the air. And this weekend he is in the San Francisco Bay Area for the opening of his film here, The Black Panthers Vanguard of the Revolution. Good morning, and thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thank you so much. Wow, wow. I mean, this film is just such a wonderful document and testimony of this great movement. Um, And within it, um, there are so many stories that I hadn't been aware of, you know, particularly what happened with uh, Huey P. Newton and Eldridge Cleaver. That is like, wow, really central. And and then the running of... um, Bobby Seale for mayor of Oakland and Elaine Brown for city council. Just sort of how that came about is really interesting. And then the way you juxtapose what happened with the Panther 21 and and what happened um, uh, in in Los Angeles. Was that, I'm trying to remember, was that, were those the ones that were like closely related in regards to time? Um, I need to look at my notes. Or am I misspeaking? I'm trying to remember. Uh, yeah, I mean the the murder of Fred Hampton and the L.A. shootout were right. four days apart. That's the one, right? Right. Yeah. So let me let me introduce you properly, and then we can just talk about wow, how you did this. This is like oh my god. I mean, Freedom Summer was awesome, like last year <laughs> when we last spoke, and and then now you have this 
oh my goodness, this opus and and right on, you know, the you know, on the sort of the uh next year is the fiftieth anniversary of the Black Panther Party and so to have this film sort of enter the discussion, wow, what a what a great you know, preview of the wonderful conversation that this is opening up, you know, for the coming year. Uh, you are an Emmy Award-winning documentary filmmaker, MacArthur Genius Fellow, and a member of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. You have been awarded the National Humanities Medal by President Obama in August of last year. The Black Panthers' Vanguard of the Revolution is your eighth film to premiere at Sundance Film Festival. You are the director of 12 documentary features, including Freedom Summer, Freedom Riders, Jonestown, The Life and Death of a People's Temple, and The Murder of Emmett Till. And and we can't leave out um, the uh, Soldiers Without Swords, um, the, you know, the film you made about the um, uh, the black press that was phenomenal i mean that was like they should put that in this list here <laughs> you are also the executive director of firelight films and co-founder of firelight media which provides technical support to emerging documentarians with multiple industry awards to your credit you are acknowledged as one of the premier documentary filmmakers working today uh you are currently in production on tell them we are rising the story of historically black colleges and universities, uh, which is the second in a series of three films uh, you will direct as part of the, a new multi-platform PBS series entitled America Revisited. So, again, welcome. Yeah, thank you so much. It's great to be on the air with you. Yeah, so this film, my goodness, um, Change was coming to America, and the fault lines could no longer be ignored. Cities were burning. Vietnam was exploding, and disputes raging over equality and civil rights. A new revolutionary culture was emerging, and it sought to drastically transform the system. The Black Panther Party for Self-Defense would, in a short time, put itself at the vanguard of that change. And, yeah, just talk about... You know, seven years ago, you write that you set out to tell the story of the rise and fall of the Black Panther Party, and a little-known history. You weren't just going to just tell us what we know and show us archival footage, but you weave archival footage. I mean, I'm thinking, wow. I mean, to look at Julian Bond, to, you know, right before he passed, you know, like, not right before he passed, but, you know, he's alive in your film. <laughs> and and then, and then to juxtapose that interview, your interview with one, when he was asked about the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense and what he said as a younger younger man about, you know, well, you know, it, it might be possible that I might be a member, but, you know, uh, definitely uh, philosophically, you know, they are right in line with what I believe. So, you know, those kind of moments were just, oh, my God. And then the Freeman brothers, oh, my goodness. You know, uh, Ronald and Roland Freeman talking about, Los Angeles and how they had to leave their families so that their families would be safe when they joined this this revolutionary movement. I mean, you know, Kathleen Cleaver, Erica Huggins, I mean, it's just like, and, you know, there's wonderful stories about the women in the party. Oh, my goodness. Okay, let me let you talk. <laughs> um, well, you know, I, I started the film seven years ago, Um uh, thinking that uh, there really hadn't been a kind of a comprehensive look at the rise and fall of the Black Panther Party, that 
you know, the Black Panthers had been part of other films, or there have been films about individual Black Panthers, but there really hadn't been a, a, a history. Something they tried to pull together, you know, the, the Black Panther story. So that's what we set out to do, um, and just very uh, grateful to have done it and get it out there and, and get people to see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So you are, you know, definitely um, have, have been telling stories for a long time. So this particular, um, you know, to tell this story, uh, were there any, I mean, any challenges? Um, did you, I mean, how how did you how did you have to shift to enter this particular world and worldview? And just sort of talk about so how do you how do you went about it? Um, you know, sort of you know, sort of laying out the story and figuring out you know, sort of how to start. How do you start? Well, one of the things that 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 I wanted to do in this film was to. I uh, talked to uh, a lot of people who were what was part of call, what was called the rank and file. You know, those were like the everyday Panthers. You know, not not the not not, not the the ones who had you know you'd see on TV or had real positions in the party, but just were you know the everyday Panthers, the rank and file. Because I thought their story hadn't been told. A lot of times, you know, stories are told from the top down. So we hear about the leaders, but we don't hear about the people who are, you know, working the trenches every day. So, you know, we went about trying to find as many uh, Panthers as we possibly could to talk to. We wanted to talk to people, you know, um, men and women and, and people on the on the West Coast and people on the East Coast and people, you know, in the middle and try to, you know, get an idea of uh, who they were, you know, why they joined the Panthers why they stayed in the Panthers, what they did day-to-day in the Panthers, and then why they eventually left the party. Mm-hmm. So that was one of the things we really wanted to do. The other thing we we wanted to do is to make sure that we had um, uh, some people from the other side. You know, we wanted to interview police officers. We wanted to interview former FBI agents, uh, uh, informers, you know, um, those kind of things, and, and, and really try to get a, a rounded picture uh, of the Panther movement and, uh, you know, how it was thought of. Uh, you know, back in 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 that day, um, and uh, that, that's how we started. You know, trying to round round, round up uh, as many different people to interview as we could find, but also at the same time, you know, we're looking for footage, we're looking for still pictures, and and we're looking and listening to a lot of music um, to to try to round out the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, the music is definitely a central character in the work. Um, I mean, it's just. It's just, just really, really beautiful, um, you know, um, you know, starting out, I mean, the opening of the film, um, just sort of setting the uh, the stage, you know, with the story of the elephant and then moving into, you know, the Soul Train <laughs> um, uh, program and then the song and then, you know, sort of, it, it just was really lovely. And then the conclusion, you know, with Gil Scott Heron, uh, you know, winter in America. Um, it just, just was just, it's just classic. It's just, and then it's so, such a beautiful, beautiful film. You know, with the, uh, the stills and um, just sort of looking at at the. I mean, because the Black Panther Party has had a look. I mean, it sort of changed the way black people were perceived. I mean, black James Brown talked about black is beautiful, but the Black Panther Party. That's what you think about when you think about the beauty of blackness, um, not just a physical beauty either, because there was a, like a love there, and so, and and then the way you weave in the ten, you know, the ten part, the ten uh, point program, 
in the midst of, you know, what's going on and the way you tell the story of, of Fred Hampton uh, and you mentioned, you know, Informer, that was that was really magnificent. So, I mean, I know you have a, you know, a team. <laughs> so... So tell us about you know how does one how does one make this kind of film in comparison to some of the other films you've made um, was this one uh, did it offer its own special challenges um, and rewards you know for that work? Well, I mean, I, I think the Panthers are, are a bit different from you know uh, a lot of the other films that I've made. You know, right before this, we made a film uh, called Freedom Summer about uh, the summer and, and voter registration in Mississippi in 1964. I think one of the things that that's interesting about the Panthers is that, you know, everybody or, or a lot of people have their own Panther story that they know. You know, they have their own Panther mythology that they come to the Panther story with already. And that's very different, you know, from from Freedom Freedom Summer or Freedom Riders or even Emmett Till, you know, that, uh, you know, so it's interesting, you know, in in showing the film around, you know, people are, are always kind of, well, what about this? Well, why didn't you talk about Angela Davis? Well, what about this? Well, what about that? You know, why didn't you do this? And and so there's there's a lot of that. And I think one of the the big things for us in production was, you know, um, again, it took uh, years to get the money and years to get this made. And, and you know, I think finally. You know, we decided, okay, we're just we're gonna tell the story the best way that we can, and we're gonna go with it. And and you know, everybody is not gonna be overjoyed with it, but if we can please the vast majority of people uh, with the film, then we should just go for it. We can kind of, you know, um, kind of uh, tiptoe around the story anymore. We just have to kind of dive in and, and and make the film. And I think that that has really worked for us. And you know, the reaction to the film has been just overwhelmingly positive. You know, from all fronts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and you know, another central player in the film is is um, J. Edgar Hoover and COINTELPRO, and you know, the way you tell that story, oh my goodness, um, is you know Claiborne Carson's you know voice there as well. It's just as as you know, narrating um, just sort of or you know, I, you know, putting an ashe to you know the evidence. It's just really magnificent. Could you talk about, uh, you know, the COINTELPRO and the New York 21 and then, you know, sort of J. Edgar Hoover's, you know, intent, you know, with regards to, you know, dismembering this, this magnificent uh, organization? Yeah, well, I, I think that, you know, J. Edgar Hoover had a special... Uh, kind of place uh, in his in his brain for for African Americans and you know the Panthers kind of you know tipped him over the edge in some way and he, and he set out to destroy the Panthers. He said that the Panthers were uh, the greatest internal threat to the security of the United States. You know, which kind of meant that they were public enemy number one as an organization. He put you know uh, uh, resources and 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 and, and manpower. You know, because there were no women in the FBI at that point. It was manpower. He put manpower behind, uh, you know, um, destroying the Panthers and did everything that he possibly could to destroy the Panthers. I think that one of the things that that, uh, is amazing and comes across in the film is that, you know, Jagger Hoover and the FBI also documented their efforts. So, you know, um, we were able to get 
the documents, you know, where they talk about, you know, um, do anything you can, um, you know, to destroy the Panthers. Just, uh, you know, don't let it get back to the FBI. There's another uh, memo, and in, in this was used in the film, where he says, you know, we have to pit, you know, Huey Newton against Eldridge Cleaver and Eldridge Cleaver against Huey Newton. They go as far as to say, you know, we have to figure out how to pit spouse against spouse. You know, so they did that by writing fake letters and having, you know, women uh, call up, you know, wives of Panthers and pretend like they were their girlfriends. And, you know, anything that they could do to, to kind of undermine the Panthers. But I think also what, what you have to take into account is that, uh, you know, the, organ- the, the organization that that, uh, the, that the FBI started or, or the program the FBI started, you know, COINTELPRO, which, you know, stood for Counterintelligence Program. COINTELPRO at that time was completely secret. So nobody knew that the FBI was doing any of this. You know, this is a, at a time where, you know, there's a show on TV, you know, the FBI, you know, it's, you know, the FBI thought it was this, you know, great thing. And, and, you know, behind the scenes, they're going after the, the, the Panthers with everything that they've got. The other thing I think about that whole piece of the story that you have to understand is that, you know, the Panthers were basically, you know, teenagers. I mean, I think the average age is like 19 or 20. So, you know, these are these are teenagers who, you know, are are, are uh, being um, targeted, you know, by the FBI, you know, with, with any kind of uh, dirty trick or anything that they can possibly do, including riddling the, the Panthers with informers and, you know, FBI um uh, informers, um, you know, all, all over the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but you, you know, because of because of your, um, you know, your filmology, and you've, you've, um, I don't know, sort of where were you when the Black Panther Party movement for self defense uh, was organized? Um, and had you ever thought about becoming a member? Uh, uh, your you know, your goal you write as a as a filmmaker, uh, is to try and give the viewer a sense of um what it has meant to be black in America and consider this within our contemporary context. And then we think about the Black Panther um party for self defense, um, you know, nearly a half a century later and you write and, and we see, you know, what they stood for then is still necessary now. So I was wondering, um, sort of, uh, where were you <laughs> when um, the Black Panther Party uh, movement um, uh, developed, and and what were your thoughts at that time? You know, uh, fifty years ago. Well, you know, I was fifteen or so when the Panthers came into being in 1966. Uh, I was living in New York City in, in, in Manhattan, and. Um, you know, I was intrigued, just like so many other people, with the Panthers. I mean, you know, they were they were fascinating. They were so different from anything that we had seen before. You know, um, the the aggressiveness of of of, of them. Uh, you know, that they were so young that they. Um, you know, had this look, you know, uh, with the black leather jackets and the berets and the afros and the sunglasses that, you know, that that, that just looked so cool, and that they were, you know, confronting. They're they're confronting things. I mean, they were very confrontational. We hadn't seen, you know, um, you know, black people, w- w- you know, w- with this kind of confrontational attitude. 
you know, um, the attitude of, of, of the mainline civil rights movement, you know, was 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 very kind of, um, you know, uh, reasoned and and thoughtful and and, and calm. You know, like we are going to be nonviolent and we are going to be calm in the face of your craziness. That was the attitude in some ways of the civil rights movement, but the Panthers were saying, you know, their, their attitude was, was more like, no, this is who we are, and, you know, we know that there's going to be a number of people who are going to not like this. They're going to hate it. They're going to hate us, you know. White people and black people are going to hate this, but there's going to also be people who are who are attracted to us and, 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 who, and those are the people who we want. You know, we, we, we don't care if we lose, you know, Ninety percent of the population, but you know, you know, we, we can make it with ten percent, twenty percent, thirty percent. That's a, that's enough for us to to make a movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, did you ever think of of becoming a member? Because you you were certainly like within that age range. <laughs> uh, you know, I I kind of uh, was around and 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 thought of it. You know, um, I remember a friend of mine and I. You know, after school, we went over to the Panther office in Harlem and. We got there, and we were like, uh, I don't think so. Um, but I think that, that you have to understand, too, that, that one of the, the things that happened was early on in the Panther movement, the repression started coming down on the Panthers. you know, And so it, it was, you know, to join the Panthers and to be part of it was a real commitment. Because you know there were there were raids and people's phones were tapped and uh, you know there were informers and and as people started to realize that it made it much much more difficult to recruit people to the Panthers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Just think about um, uh, the scene where um, you know that big big shootout in in Los Angeles. I'm like, wow, they're shooting. I was just looking at them like they're shooting and there's film crew there like they have witnesses and they're just just shooting into this building i'm like oh my goodness and uh yeah um yeah. well that well that, that's one of the the the, the major scenes in, in the film is the the shootout with the uh, la police where they raid uh, the panther headquarters in LA, and one of the things that makes it so, you know, fascinating is, is that the Panthers had put sandbags around the inside walls of, of their headquarters because this came four days after Fred Hampton was killed in a raid, so they were expecting to be raided. They also put dirt in the in between the outside and the inside walls. They had poured dirt in the walls, and you know, they basically made the uh, the Panther office a, a fortress. You know, with, with gun gun ports to shoot out of, and the police are shooting in, and because it's so well fortified, you know, this this gun battle goes on between the police and the Panthers for five hours, which allows the news to get there, the news crews to get there, and there's um, incredible footage of the gun battle, and in the film we have uh, two Panthers who are in who are inside. Um, and and shooting out shooting out uh, you know from the headquarters and I think there's three cops that we have who who are outside and talk about you know the raid and 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 they're shooting in and uh, one of the things that's really interesting is that this is the first time us this is the the first SWAT team was formed in L.A. and this is the first time the SWAT team um, delivered what they called a high risk warrant so it was kind of like the first real action of the SWAT team. Yeah, and just um, I don't remember the name of 
who um besides um uh Ronald not Ronald but um uh yeah, Ronald Freeman, I'm trying to think of the Ronald. Yeah, Ronald Freeman who was inside and he talked about how he was shot so he couldn't use one side you know, his I think his right side was shot so he couldn't use that side. But just sort of what they did, you know, when the tear gas came in. Um but what I really, really loved was when, um, and I don't know if you remember the name of, of of the other Panther. Wayne Farr. Yeah, yeah. And how you was talking about how free he felt. I just loved that. Yeah, yeah I mean, that, that's that's kind of the moment in the film, um, in, in some ways, that, that the film works up to, and it's just an incredible statement that, you know, he says he felt free, mm-hmm. you know, being inside this building. Um, where, where basically they're trapped, they're scared to give up because you know, um, Bi- little Bobby Hutton, for another former Panther, was killed. You know, as he tried to give up. You know, you, you're scared to even try to give up, um, and you're trapped. You're running out of bullets, and you know, he says he felt free. It's a, it's an amazing moment. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. And and then you think about, um, uh, you know, the the ten the ten point program. And uh, and then you think about, uh, you know, the whole battle of, of people of African descent, you know, in this nation and in Western culture, um, post-enslavement has been about, you know, human rights, you know, freedom, justice, um, democracy, you know, if it exists, it should be applicable to everyone. And so that moment in, in this film itself is sort of like, yeah, when's it going to happen? <laughs> Right. Yeah, when's it going to happen? It's like 2015, October. When's it going to happen? Um, well, I think what the Panthers prove and show is, and hopefully part of the meaning of the film, is, you know, it, it'll it, it, it'll happen, um, uh, you know, when we get, when we make it happen, you know, when we keep pushing and, and, and make it happen. That's the only way change comes, you know. It's not going to come as a gift. It has to come from us pushing and, and forcing change. Yeah, and and then the shift, um, you know, when when um, QEP Newton is released, and and even though it's not necessarily uh, explored, you know, um, in its entirety, you know, sort of the QEP Newton that comes out of out of prison, you know, we see him as as a as a, uh, a wounded person, you know, mm-hmm. because of that experience in prison, and we think about, you know, you know, and then at the end you have in the credits. And letting us know that you know that so many Black Panther Party uh, members are still being held as political prisoners behind bars, and uh, and then since you made the film, there are people who have you know, you know that are no longer with us um, that have died uh, because of I mean you know all of this affects one's um, you know not just psyche but also body. I mean you know they're soldiers, so it's like wow. Um, that's that's really a wonderful um, uh, feature of of the work as well. Well, thank you. I I, I think that you know it, it's important to it was important for us to 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 end the film. The last card on the film is that you know there, there's still Panthers in jail um, from what happened almost 50 years ago, and I think the, the thing to, to to know is that you know these things happen and and they they these people these people were teenagers you know and. 
and they now they've been in jail. You know, um, Eddie Conway was just released in Baltimore, who was in jail for 44 years. You know, and and they were also, you know, a lot of them were set up by the FBI. It was, you know, the FBI, you know, would have uh, agents provocateurs who would, you know, arrange for the Panthers to get guns and and, and spur them on these, you know, 18 and 17 year old kids, you know, to to commit acts, uh, uh, criminal acts that then, you know, the, the the local police would be informed about and they could raid the Panthers. And, you know, that that that, that, that basically, you know, it, it, it's time to, to to free these people. You know, they, they've been in jail long enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, the, there was a, the, a West Coast um, conference for um, prisoner, former prisoner um, human rights uh, just uh, maybe uh, two weeks ago uh, here in Oakland. And... Um, and uh, Seiko Odinga, who was just released uh, last year, um, was here in town, you know, talking about, um, you know, 40 years, 40 years, my goodness, yeah, behind bars. Um, and, um, yeah, then we think about, you know, other folks still languishing um, behind bars. And, yeah, and and also the folks that are in exile, you know, like, um you know, uh, brother uh, Pete O'Neill um, in, in Tanzania. We think about, yeah, it's just, it's just really, really something. You know, the the battle is still continuing, in, in a, on a lot of levels. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, as I said, it's it's, it's time that uh, you know, at some point you have to be compassionate. That's part of life, I think. Yeah, but then you think about government. Government is not necessarily a human entity, you know, just like corporations are. Well, hopefully, if corporations are, then hopefully the government is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, in our in our closing minutes, I just want to know if you could talk a little bit about the wonderful soundtrack, and and if you could also tell us about you know your team, your creative team, because you all are magnificent. Um, well, the soundtrack, you know, all of the music um, on the soundtrack, you know, I, I selected personally. And one of the things that we wanted to do was to give a sense of those times and, and, and uh, you know, the fact that there were all these, all these songs about revolution or, or songs, you know, like Black Is, Black Is Me, Black Is You, Am I Black Enough For You, or all, all of that kind of music that, that people were hearing, you know, every day on the radio and that this was part of that time, you know, and and uh, it was just this, as, as Clay Carson says in, in the beginning of the film, that this was kind of a revolutionary time, and you know, this was going on all over the world. But you know, we really wanted the music 